Hello, this is Mahangel, and you're listening to the Manitobaville Podcast. On today's show, we have Dr. Barry Prentice to talk to us about lighter-than-air ships and all the work he is doing to bring that reality to us. It's a great idea, as you'll see in the conversation. I'm all in. I'm all for this. This is a great idea. So let's do it. Okay. Now, before we get there, just before the interview, I'd like to remind you to check out manitobaville.ca. That's the home of the Manitobaville podcast. You can see all kinds of interviews there. Um, You can contact us through the website. You can also find us on any social media that you might use or encounter at Manitobaville. Just search Manitobaville and you'll find us. And you can also make donations to the podcast. And if you don't want to make a donation and you're in a business, you might want to advertise on the podcast. So if that's the case, then let us know and we will pass you along to the relevant good people who make that happen for you and us. And it'll all be good. So just before we get to the interview, um, just remind you again, we're talking to Dr. Barry Prentice, and we're talking about lighter-than-air ships. And this is one, if you're into innovation and transportation, then you don't want to miss this. This is uh, quite a conversation, and uh, we're going to get to it just after this. speaking. Good afternoon. How are you doing? This is Mahangel. Oh, Mahangel, how are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. <clears throat> Sorry, frog in my throat, but other than that, I'm great. Because <laughs> we're not talking all day and then, oh, I'm on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you're you're over at the U of M right now? I Well, at home right now because uh, they don't even allow us on the campus. Oh, yeah, everything. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> well, we have to seek permission to go in and do anything in our office and so on, and which is fine. You know, they want to keep track on who goes in and not. If there is a problem, they can trace who it is. Okay. So, so it's a, are, a good are, deal. Are students on, on campus right now? No. Well, I don't know if there are. There's people in the residence still mm-hmm. there, even though they're taking courses online. Mm-hmm. And I guess there are a few labs uh, that have run earlier in the year. I don't know what's really going on in that regard. Yeah. It, I think it must be really tough for Students in engineering and sciences that uh, you know need labs. It must feel like uh, summertime there all the time, where you don't know who's around or what's going on. Or <laughs> where you can get it feels from. actually very eerie. It feels yeah. like you know, uh, I don't know, one of those uh, you know science fiction uh, shows where you go in and there's everything's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Buildings don't make make culture. It's the people that make the building and the culture. So. Yeah, it feels very, very different. But yeah. uh, and they're designed I'm to be forward. full of people. Well, indeed, and uh, I'm looking forward to September. I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be back to normal by that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have students then? Uh, not this semester. Uh, I do in the fall. But in general, yeah, you teach courses. Yeah. Oh yeah, and uh, I teach a course in uh, transport economics. Oh, okay. Uh, so. So supply or supply side, I guess the well, no, the it, well, it's supply and demand, but you know, it's a yeah. supply chain management course, and you know, really to introduce the students into how does the transportation system actually work. Mm-hmm. So it's really about transport through the lens of economics. That's what Jeff Bezos studies too. I hear a lot. <laughs> 
I guess I'm in good company then. As he, yeah, well, as he's about to, I keep reading this stuff and he's about to reinvent shipping. He's about to reinvent the last mile. He's about to, you know, it's all about saving money all the way along to get you your thing that you order on Amazon. Well, you know, that's how we get progress and productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you look back and, and think about you know, where we were 50 years ago compared to today. It's, it's really unbelievable how much things have actually changed. Yeah, like and, little drones and stuff going around. <laughs> like, like those, <laughs> were, those were working concepts, I guess, way back in, you know, late last century. But now they're in everybody's hands. Well, again, you know, that's just one example of mm-hmm. technology that has moved forward and and things that we sort of take for granted, you know, like uh, even uh, I I actually lived through and see the, the rise and demise of uh, fax machines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never hear that anymore. That was replaced with the computer one, the hookup sound, and then that, that went away too. Like We never hear our machines anymore. They're all silent. <laughs> well, and, and again, I have a, a souvenir punch card from a uh, computer. Oh, wow. Uh, which I had in my undergraduate years, and uh, and yeah. I never want to go back to that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and yet at the time it was cutting edge. I, re- I read a book recently about uh, Star Wars, and the guy talking about uh, George Lucas had the state-of-the-art computer equipment to um, to make all the uh, the passes for to make the uh, the matting for the the battle scenes and all that, the spaceships and everything, and uh, and yeah, he had his own custom uh, punch card. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, you must look back at that and go, you know, wow, everything was so well, hands-on back then. Well, I tell the students that, you know, the, the laptop I'm using for a lecture has more power than the mainframe of the computer when, it, when I was their age, mm-hmm. much more power. And, you know, so we, we just accept things, like take them for granted because they're all around us all the time. But, you know, it is an incremental, gradual improvement and change, and, and that's how uh, that's how we enjoy the, the lifestyle we have. I, I remember reading that, we're only responsible for about 30% of what we actually earn. That all the rest of it is based on things that have been discovered and developed before us, mm. which is an interesting way of looking at uh, our society and economy. And yet uh, insects do uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of work for us at the same time still. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't want to do without bees, that's for sure. Well, every yeah. insect, yeah. Like, it's just <laughs> incredible. Somebody did, they added it up and they're like, yeah, this is like in the trillions of just making crops grow, you know, never mind pesticides, herbicides, but just what goes on under, underneath and what goes on in trees and plants and the air. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I wasn't thinking about that in terms yeah. of the other 70%. I was thinking about no, yeah. things that people have invented, but you're right. I mean, if we actually look at, you know, the, 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 just the miracle of life, you know, the, yeah. uh, we don't have to invent uh, piglets. Or calves. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine? Eh? Yeah, it's amazing how little we have to do with the earth, except for you know, mainly destroying it in, in, in really creative ways. You know? <laughs> Hopefully, we're getting wiser. Yeah. So yeah. Stop those air. I agree with you on the airplane thing, and I've, they've known that for a long time, and I'm surprised that they still support that industry to the extent they do. It's terrible. Well, uh, again, you know, it's back to. Uh, Individual demands and consumers, uh, what people want, what they're willing to pay for, and what the market will deliver. Yeah, and nobody wants to live in 1984 world, but, you know, to fix things, sometimes you think that's the only thing you can do. 
<laughs> well, well, I don't know. I, I, I tend to be fairly optimistic. I think, yeah. uh, you know, by and large, things have, have, are getting better. And, uh, you know, even the, in the depths of the pandemic that we're in now, you know, we've made tremendous strides in medicine now. Mm-hmm. I think the, uh, the improvements in cancer treatments are, are going to be quite substantial coming out of this. Yeah, they said they threw so much money at COVID research. They threw it at everybody to see yeah. what could pop up anywhere. And it ended up, I think, ALS, cancer, all kinds of research jumped ahead big time because they finally had, had the financing and the funding to do proper research. Exactly, exactly. So, Which actually speaks to you know, the role of, of government in leading innovation. There's some interesting books that are out on this topic now that you know, suggests that governments have actually been investing way too little. Mm-hmm. That, you know, in order to actually make breakthroughs, that the private sector will follow the government lead, not mm-hmm. the other way around. Mm-hmm. So, albeit you have people like Bezos and and uh, uh, others who are in the high-tech industry who have done great things, but none of those things actually would have happened without the government having invested first mm-hmm. in the development of the technologies that allow them to do it, including the Internet. Yeah. So, you know, the, the idea that, you know, governments should wait for the private sector to give us the signals, no, it's the other way around. Yeah, because uh, it's hard to operate within a governmental uh, substructures where they hamper it in some cases while telling you, to go, it's like your parents telling you to do something with no, you know, knowledge or resource, you know, <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, can't, you know. Well, it's, you also, on this. it's also a matter of risk. You yeah. know, the, the private sector has to make sure that it, it can give a return to its shareholders and otherwise don't do it. And there are many things where the risk is just simply too great. Mm-hmm. The social benefits are there, but the risk is too great for the private sector to go forward. So this is where collectively, as a society, we have to take the risk. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is what <laughs> we haven't been able to get our, our heads around is that failure is part of taking risk. And it's, so, necessary. You know, we, it's necessary. It's necessary. You don't learn anything if you don't try, and you might fail. But failure is not failure. Failure well, is just finding out that that doesn't work. Well, it's, if you don't <laughs> fail, you've been taking. You don't have been taking enough risk. In fact, there's yeah. a. Is there a different the dark... word? Is there a different word for failure that we can that the world should put in place? Saying <laughs> saying this is a learning experience that you know now we know now we know what we didn't know. And it's something that isn't going to work for us. So we can we failed, <clears throat> not failed, but everybody's saying fail fast, like like go down that road quickly. And when you discover it's not going to work, stop spending money on it and put it somewhere else. Well, I would take it the other way and, and look at you know the the benefits of success for the work we've done. Mm-hmm. I uh, some years ago I worked uh, uh, looking at the benefits of uh, agricultural research. And we looked at the benefits of the research that had been done on corn in Ontario, uh, because you know we we could only grow corn down near Windsor, Ontario, uh, for for grain corn. Okay. But through the breeding and and work, now you know grain corn can be grown just about anywhere in southern Ontario. Hmm. Well, the impact of that was sufficient to pay for all the research that had ever been spent on agriculture, hmm. that one crop. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, the same thing could be said here in, in the West for canola. Uh, the, the payoff that has come from the research in canola would pay for all the research that's ever been done in agriculture in Western Canada. Yeah. So, you know, looking at 
some of these big hits and the benefits you get, you know, we, we need to put that into perspective for and allow more failure to occur because uh, that's the cost of getting the, the big breakthroughs. Yeah, and if all you're left with is, is lots of canola and lots of corn and they call it a day, it's not the healthiest. <laughs> and, you, you know, they should put it towards everything, all the good food too. You know? Well, you know, it's just a matter of... Uh, you know, those are two successes. There, yeah. there are lots of others in agriculture that. The, well, then they push it though, to. like because now canola is like so pushed by government and 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 industry and stuff, and it's and it's like, well, that's great that that you did that, but uh, it's squeezing out other products off the shelf beside it. You know? Yeah, it, it can be true. I mean, uh, uh, barley is one of those which have, has suffered some degree. Of, uh, of acreage loss because it's not as profitable. But, you know, again, we Well, the we microbreweries are pushing that again, so that's going to make it come back, I guess. <laughs> well, well, it's not like we're running out of barley either. Yeah. yeah, you need beer. Oh, geez. Okay, <laughs> free up a field. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, so research. So U of M does a lot of research, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the largest research uh function, I guess, in the province would be at the university. This is where most of the research actually is done. Uh, The difficulty has always been how you uh, get that research and knowledge out into uh, commercial application. And uh, the university has been doing a lot of work on that over the last 20 years. They set up an office of research to try to uh, patent different ideas. And it's really strange, you know, when, when everything is out there and it's made free, nobody can see a profit in it, nobody wants to invest in it. Mm-hmm. As soon as they started making patents, people were anxious to get in and, and buy in because then they could actually do something with it. Yeah. It was a, really a strange sort of function, but uh, I think this is the future of the universities, is uh, working closely with industry on, on such things as medical devices and you name it, you know, all kinds of things. Oh, I just have a sidebar here, uh, or an interjection from the previous part of our conversation, where the, the changes uh, that have occurred over the the decades, and one of them is, I think, the researchers' shirts last longer, because you no longer need a pocket protector to protect against your exploding <laughs> pens, because it's all digital now, and everybody's typing all the time. <laughs> no question of that. I think the other side is that the things never go away. You know, once it's out in the internet and can be searched. Yeah, uh, you know, even obscure papers can suddenly pop up, and uh, so I think it, you know, over time, there's a great benefit to that. Is, you know, having a library, the, the biggest problem is how do you retrieve things? Well, how do you how do you how do you protect things too? If you have an industrial secret, or uh, you know, and you have this, like I guess espionage people just go online now and search <laughs> libraries of universities because everybody's scanning everything. <laughs> well, I, I guess it, it, not everything gets out there, but you know, again, the uh, uh, the notion of of breakthroughs in some field that may not actually have an application in that f- field, but they have an application someplace else. Mm. That's the cross pollination you get with research that is really important. So yeah, so instead of lateral thinking in your own head, you're lateral thinking across many many minds of, of varying experience and varying degrees of where they're at. So anything could pop and, and be considered, a, you know, eureka kind of thinking. <laughs> well, at least you hope for that. Again, you know, the, uh, the eureka moments are, are not as frequent as we really would like them to be, I think. But 
uh, again, it's back to you only need a few to more than pay for all the others that yeah. uh, that aren't. Have so, we had uh, any here in Manitoba? Any oh, I think so. I mean, uh, one of those was invented right here in Manitoba was uh, uh, anti-lock braking. Most oh, really? people aren't aware of that, but it was invented here. It was made in the public domain, and you know, we never got a university never got a penny for it. Huh. It's used in every car now, everywhere. Wow. You know, it's just one of those examples of a of research that and things that were done, and you know, nobody really can trace those back very easily. But uh, you know, that's just one example. That's neat. Yeah, I guess we need it here. Well, that's what that makes sense. I guess in the end, right? <laughs> it certainly saved me a few times. Yeah. yeah, I remember when it first came out as a freaky kind of sound, but boy, it slowed you down nice. I remember the days like, well, you know, we also we age ourselves, but it doesn't matter. In the the 80s or whatever, when you're driving and you lock up your brakes and you you got your wheels turned, and you're going, I'm going to slam straight into that thing, and then you take take your foot off the brakes, the wheels turn again, and suddenly your your car turns. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's uh, part of the experience of driving on ice and snow. Yeah. Like I, I always feel, you know, sort of sympathy for, for seeing uh, new Canadians who come in. And, you know, they've they've ever driven on ice and snow. It must be absolutely frightening. You know, <laughs> you see them crawling on the main street. You know, yeah. half the speed of uh, a regular traffic. But you understand. Oh, yeah. Well, I know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the license is so easy to get. Just pass this. The memorize this stuff and come out on a very nice day and drive your car around with me and. Yeah, you're good to go. <laughs> and the first rain or the first blizzard or the first ice or whatever, and it's like, okay, whole different ball game. Yeah. yeah, I think you have to do a few slides before you actually learn how to come out of it. Is this why you want to get rid of roads? Because uh, no, just I, fly fact, over I, uh, the land instead? <laughs> no, on the contrary. I I love all aspects of transportation, including roads. So, oh, really? okay. uh, oh yes, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not uh, opposed to anything. I just think... Uh, you know, we need just we need access to places that don't have roads. Yeah. And you know, and, the, and we got a lot of that in Canada. Probably seventy yeah. percent of the landmass has no roads. And as far as driverless cars go, I, I, was, I was telling somebody once, I was driving around, just watching how everybody drives differently. And I was, I was thinking, you know, if Elon Musk and these guys want, and Google guys and all those, if they want the world to be like with driverless cars, it has to happen overnight, all at once, because you can't have a a totally logic-based vehicle driving along in general traffic, which is illogical at times. And yeah, the just the real crazy. danger. Yeah, the real danger is the people who are driving, not the uh, the robo cars. Yeah, uh, but I think they're coming. Well, they can just fast. get wrecked. They could just get driven into by somebody because they're like, I'm I'm here going there, and then somebody else is like, I got to get four lanes over to do you know, and they you know people go. Eh? It's just like. I can well, see a lot thing, of wreckage and damage being done just because of the erraticness of the driver, the human driver, where, yes. you, where you either have to leave it all human so everybody can react and, and dipsy-doodle, or everything has to be automated, like in a computer, where it just has its logic patterns and just does the job. Well, I've seen some analysis that suggests that uh, one of the things that will cause the, the shift over to the autonomous car faster is actually going to be insurance rates. Mm -hmm. because the people who are still driving cars are, are going to have to pay much more in insurance because they're the real risk. Yeah. And it may well be that that is the kind of thing that will tip uh, people over to, uh, you know, having the robo-taxi come pick you up. Well, see, it's going to be 1984. It's just going to be like, okay, nobody can drive now because you can't. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> or at least in certain aspects of, of, of places. You know, there might be one highway corridor that's just driverless transportation 
and uh, and then humans can drive on the other the other lanes or whatever. But you're going to have to keep them separated for sure. Or a special track where people actually want to steer cars can go and do that. Yeah, yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, you know, I think the uh, yeah, I I don't know if uh, it'll be in my lifetime, but I can see the day when uh, yeah, we won't have. Uh, anybody driving cars oh this will happen right we're talking about it on the podcast here so it's going to happen soon the right people are going to hear this they're going to go oh you know it that makes total sense we better uh get on that well, well the predictions about... well go ahead the predictions are the robo cars or the robo taxis could be here within seven years yeah uh, they're already on the road so yeah. uh, uh that's not hard to believe Well, you know, and people are using their their map apps and stuff to um, guide them around already. So, you know, there's a lot more, like even with a human driver, there's a lot more automation going on. Um, well, it started with, uh, I think, taking standard cars and turning them into automatic cars. You know, I've read this too. They've said like that. that, you know, it'll be sort of an incremental uh, mm-hmm. change. So, you know, we... Everybody is quite happy to have the car tell you that you're too close to something and beep. Okay, well, mm-hmm. I'll have that. Yeah. Um, people are quite happy to have the car park itself. Okay, I'll have that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, gradually, incrementally, things happen to tell, well, why am I actually still steering this car? Yeah, why am I stressing <laughs> myself out? Like, it is stressful to drive, even if you know the route and everything, because of that. In, you know, I mean, your drive to work, you're probably keeping an eye out because uh, something could happen and you want to be ready to react to it. I mean, there's an inherent level of stress in driving. Some people love to drive loader, but I think they're just people who like that stress and like dealing with it, you know, but it, but it's there. Well, as you mentioned uh, at, earlier on, we, we talked about the, uh, uh, the sensors and, and driving on ice and snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you need a bit more judgment. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure the, the cars will necessarily have that judgment. I mean, the slip of the wheels, I guess, you know, and they can have sensors and so on, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I don't see when them you... testing Teslas up here and they should be, if you can drive a Tesla in Manitoba year round, I don't think you'd have a problem anywhere else in the world. Actually, I understand they do have a few Teslas in Winnipeg. Well, they, they have the cars them. here, but are they testing like the, the, uh, the yeah, Detroit the... guys used to test up here? Yeah, no, the idea is that they are testing them, uh, driving them because they, they do want to check the, uh, you know, the ability to operate in the winter conditions and so on. Oh, okay. So they're actually company or factory cars that are being tested. I mean, this was yeah. a year ago or so I saw that. So okay, good. Maybe yeah. they've finished. So they are smart people. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of brainiacs uh, operating down there. The other thing I just saw recently was uh, high-speed trains that can operate in, in uh, extremely cold weather. Yeah, the you know the the trains uh, the issue for trains many times is uh, is the track itself, mm-hmm. and it depends what you mean by cold because uh, well, they, for the railways yeah. uh, things really change when you get below negative twenty five. Yeah, where we are right now, and like the actual structure itself changes. Well, more split rails and derailments can happen uh, at this more temperature. Brittle. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the switches don't work quite as well. I mean, nothing mm-hmm. works quite as well at 25 below, including yeah. me. <laughs> what about monorail stuff like they're using in Japan and all that? Because I think this is where that this was in Asia somewhere. They're developing yeah. this. But they've had those, those high-speed monorails. But can they operate in, in like, icy and, and snow and, like, when you get build up like that? 
Well, it depends on how it's structured. I mean, there, there's two types of monorails. That, there's the ones that hang below and there's the one that rides above. Okay. Uh, the ones that hang below seem to be a, a better situation because they don't get any ice and snow clogging into the, uh, into the systems. And uh, monorails are actually quite an interesting uh, development. It's been around a long time. And uh, they may well be a better form of, of mass transit than trying to build LRTs or, or subways, which are really expensive, yeah. because it's, it's really land acquisition. Yeah. You know, being able to retrofit uh, the city settlement pattern with, uh, with, a, with an LRT or anything else is pretty difficult. But Well, we already have the, the highways and byways and freeways. Uh, how much would it cost? What's the cost comparison per mile? To build a to to rebuild a four lane highway versus put up one mile of of monorail. Now that's a good question. Uh, I, I I don't know. We I don't have enough experience with monorails to really know their costs. But uh, the issue has to do a lot with land acquisition. Well, we already have it. We have Highway Six that goes north. We have Highway Ten, Highway <laughs> One, Highway, and in the city you got freeways everywhere. I mean, just put one down the middle. Of you know, well, you, well, you could, and I mean, you can, and, and you can reclaim a lot of land for business, and everybody wants to, to push business and and stuff like that. So, so next time, instead of spending, what is it per mile? Like of highway, it's like a million dollars a mile or something. Well, that? it depends on what kind of highway. Like just even a, a gravel road uh, here in the prairie, you mm-hmm. know, probably half a million dollars a kilometer. Right. If you get up into the shield, it's three million a kilometer. Yeah. So if you can just go above that or, or they're constricted to just one monorail thing. Um, even even just the, the amount of land you have to deal with is, is constricted now just down to that one uh, structure. So, I, you know, and then, and then whatever. Like, I don't know. I think that's the way to go because then everybody can just jump on, be stress-free, <laughs> get places really fast. And, uh, you know, you can go sightsee in Thompson. Well, the day, you know, and then come back. <laughs> Why not? Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the uh, again, these things tend to be uh, a function of what is the uh, the density of traffic. Yeah, you need a certain density of traffic to make uh, the infrastructure worthwhile. Well, the way to guarantee density of traffic too is to build more lanes on a highway, as they've proven in LA. Every time they expand uh, freeways, you get more density of traffic because everybody thinks it's, it's easy now to go there, so they go there and it just clogs well, it up again. Well, yes, because they're, they're, they rob something else, so the the, yeah. the the street or bus or whatever. Yeah, uh, doesn't make you sense. Know that it is true that you uh, you know you, you can't build your way out of congestion, mm-hmm. uh, but that's a different issue than than the density of traffic you need to to finance infrastructure mm-hmm. and make it uh, worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, which is why, you know, in Canada, I don't think there's any place in Montreal, Toronto, maybe at the margin where a high-speed train uh, can be economic. Mm-hmm. We just don't have the population, uh, and our distances are fairly long. Yeah. It's not hard to justify it in China, where you have 20 million people in, in Shanghai and 20 million people in Beijing, mm-hmm. and you can have trains every hour. Yeah, But uh, it doesn't work quite as well in a country like Canada. And I guess we've proven that we don't really need this much road structure anyway, because COVID has shut down everything. And that's probably going to be in the back of our minds forever now. And, <laughs> and people work more at home or they, they stay still more. And, and, you know, so now is it going to be worth it to rebuild, you know, freeways in cities when they might take lanes out and go, well, it's decongesting now. But, you know, 
I don't know. Well, the jury's out on that. I mean, uh, how we will react after the pandemic? I mean, some things are going to to remain uh, that you know we have uh, been adjusted for. And in other cases, I think we just go back to where we we were. Oh, that's um, sad. Is that sad? <laughs> it depends. It's a, great, you know, but it's I mean... a great opportunity for progress <laughs> of some kind. You know. Well, <laughs> some of those things going back to normal are going to a baseball game in the middle of the summer. You know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, being uh, group activities and so on, yeah. uh, being back to the university with the students in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the idea of of everybody having to come in every day into a workplace, uh, if it's an office type workplace, uh, that may well have changed. You mm-hmm. know, maybe the you'll come in two or three times a week instead of five times a week, yeah. and uh, and you do some things because. And I think also, you know, air travel. Uh, a lot of businesses have probably made a huge savings by just not having to fly people around to meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, with a Zoom call or two, and, and again, the literature on that's interesting because it says, you know, it's not quite so good if you're just meeting someone for the first time. But if you're seeing people on a regular basis, mm-hmm. instead of meeting in person every week, you could meet once a month and then the other times do it by video conferencing. Yeah. And the and computers and the computers we use that do most of our work don't go home, don't have to go to the office, don't have to go anywhere. They're just fine, and they do everything just fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. This whole this whole human culture thing of of uh, socialist like socialism or socializing. Sorry, I'm getting the, my uh, my. <laughs> yeah, there is a difference. <laughs> my my pol- Politburo terms are mixed up with my, uh, uh, in business terms. Uh, but yeah, the but the socializing aspect of of business, like within the computer thing is, you know, uh, they don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to eat or drink or, you know, use a washroom. There's no sewage facilities for, for IMAX, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe, maybe we can, I don't know. Do we emulate them or do we push back against that? Uh, you know, I don't think there's any turning back the clock. Yeah. Um, you know, we go forward from here in one way or another. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, the things that are changing, uh, like home delivery of food, uh, we get home delivery of food now. Uh, I don't know if I ever want to go back to having to go out and, you know, worry about getting parking and mm-hmm. food and bags in the middle of the winter. I mean, that, that's not really that nice yeah. or enjoyable. We used to get uh, home food delivery on the farm. Well, exactly. You know, from you the know, garden, from the barn. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> in the, in the uh, older days, home delivery actually yeah. food was uh, fairly standard for a lot of people who didn't have cars. Yeah. You yeah. Know? But the... Uh, it was um, acceptable. It was acceptable way of living. Right. Yeah. But, you know, they're, you know, again, uh, I think for, it depends on the individual. Like some people just really like shopping. Mm-hmm. And they're going out and seeing things and walking around and doing that sort of thing. And, and they get joy from that. Yeah. And then, choosing your, your own apples, for example, instead precisely. of having apples brought to you that somebody else chose. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and others, you know, don't care quite so much. So um, I don't, again, I don't think we'll end up at one extreme or the other, uh, but we'll probably see a greater mix of home delivery. And, and certainly there's a whole group of people who are, are shut-ins or, 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 you know, not really able to get out uh, easily to go shopping. Mm. It's perfect for them. Well, I think when it comes to food delivery, food uh, access of food, 
for a city like Winnipeg, I think the whole city becomes a, a group of shut-in people, even <laughs> if you go to the grocery store to pick your own food. Like, it's still brought to, you know, the location. It's still transported in, you know, from well, somewhere correct. else. Like, if you, correct. if you were truly choosing your own food, you would go to the garden that's grown in or the field, and you would <laughs> look at the crates being brought out, and you say, that one, that one, and that one, I'll take those. But if it's, you know, even then, you don't know if you're getting the best one that was grown in there. <laughs> that field you know or or whatever you know you you have you don't know what was put on it or i mean you're told and government regulations tell you what's happening to your food but you don't really know no but uh since you know i don't see a lot of people keeling over i i, I don't worry too much about it but there's not uh, a lot of supermen either so <laughs> you know, if everybody ate right and they're good and what they're eating maybe that would be different too we can only maybe. see what we see right <laughs> you know i don't know but whatever, I'm just talking, uh, I don't know, just, I guess, uh, in broader terms. But um, yeah, so so roads roads are a terrible idea. Driving your own car is a terrible idea. Uh, monorails are unproven, expensive, maybe a terrible idea. Well, not idea. necessarily but, unproven. But the best no, idea... But the I, best I would hold that back. <laughs> Was that? There are, actually, there are actually quite a few of them in the world. Yeah, but not and here. Like, I'm, I'm talking for here, for here yeah. yeah. So these things aren't aren't viable. They're expensive. They're uh, really expensive to maintain. Um, so so your idea is to just fly above it all. <laughs> well, not in the city, but uh, but certainly uh, uh, the idea of, of going uh, to the north, uh, or or to put another way around, you know, this is a uh, the transportation system we're talking about with airships. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a technology that has was proven ninety years ago. It's not like we, we have to prove it, uh, you know, to, it works. Well, the Germans, some, the, the Kaiser proved it over London. <laughs> well, yeah, that would be a... They're okay. highly effective. Well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that the, um, the, the technology does work, and it's very much like uh, a couple of other examples. You know, if you go back to the 1930s, you could find uh, wind turbines, or they called windmills at the time, mm-hmm. electric cars, and dirigibles. Mm-hmm. And they all worked, and they were commercially available, and they all ceased to be, uh, to, to be a commercial opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the reason was the same, was fossil fuels. They had lobby oil. Yeah. Or the oil well, oil. The, it was cheap. It was cheap, and it was, in some cases, better. Yeah. You had regular power with coal-fired plants, and... You had uh, gasoline cars that have more range. And, and of course, uh, in the case of the airships, it was a jet engine mm-hmm. and jet airplanes that nothing could compete against. Mm-hmm. So all these technologies went away because fossil fuels were cheap. Nobody cared about uh, carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, you know, they were convenient. Yeah. Well, today, electric cars are back. Wind turbines are, are popping up everywhere. And the dirigibles are just the next technology. And the thing is, a lot of the, yeah, because oil, when you put when you put gasoline in a cylinder and explode it, nothing comes close to the energy that that creates. And so, <laughs> for a long time, it was just no brainer use this because it'll get you the maximum uh, velocity or the maximum whatever you're looking for in your machine. But now with oil sort of uh, on the wane. And, you know, people say, oh, we haven't reached peak oil. And it's like, well, go look at the oil prices. <laughs> you know, it's not cheap to fill up your car with gas and, and drive around and stuff. Like, this is this is sort of 
why I guess we're we're create we're we're looking back and saying okay what what low power things work just just fine or you know what's going to be the best of the what's left over and, and when oil moves off the uh, off center stage we're going to be left with the the expectation to get around cheaply and, and quickly and we're going to be left with the expectation that things should work like they used to but it, they're, they're not really going to well so. i don't think people really like going backwards mm -hmm. in the sense that they don't want to give up I think if your electric cars are going to replace gasoline, they have to perform as well. Yeah. And they have to be affordable mm -hmm. and competitive. And, you know, that's really always the key is that, uh, you know, people make their decisions. Now, uh, government obviously is trying to give us a nudge by putting a, a tax on carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And and that will help to uh, to shift over and, and increase the, uh, the movement towards electric cars. But I, I think that, you know, uh, oil is going to be used for a long, long time. And we should remember that the idea isn't to eliminate all carbon emissions. It's just to reduce them to what is a sustainable level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that uh, sustainable level is, is about half of what we're doing right now. But that still means that half of what we're doing can continue. Mm -hmm. So how so much, I, how much uh, what, what I always wonder about the airships then is... Um, I guess just the basic stuff, uh, but mm -hmm. one of them is is to do with powering them. How are they powered? How yeah. how do you get how do you move them around? Oh, just with the propeller type uh, uh, thrusters, because again, uh, they're not uh, uh, slow in the sense that the cruise speed of the old zeppelins was about eighty miles an hour or one hundred and forty five kilometers an hour, okay. which is pretty fast. Mm -hmm. But you don't need a jet engine to do that. Propellers are just fine. So what is what is the fuel then in it? Uh, well, uh, at the present time, uh, on the blimps, what they've been using is just regular airplane engines uh, mm -hmm. hooked up with propellers. But uh, in the future, I know that even the all the airship companies are looking at hydrogen fuel cells uh, to produce electricity mm -hmm. and then have electric motors driving propellers. Right. And that works much better for us here in, in the cold because... Electric motors don't seem to complain as much about the cold as gasoline and diesel engines do. So yeah. uh, a much better system, in fact. And doing that with hydrogen, uh, and that will likely be the case because batteries are just too heavy and you don't get enough uh, uh, set density of, uh, of power you need. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the hydrogen fuel cells have nothing but water as a, as a byproduct, so zero carbon emissions. And uh, that's the uh, one of the great advantages of the airship. Uh, they're so big that there's lots of room to put a fuel tank. Because mm. you know hydrogen has to have a big fuel tank. You you can't fit that easily into a tractor trailer or mm -hmm. or a uh, an airplane. Yeah. Uh, but in an airship, then no problem. So uh, we see this as being one of the great uh, advantages of the technology, and why uh, in the future, you know, I envision airships being one of the major air freight movers, uh, especially across oceans. Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, the economics of freight are, are different than passengers. You know, we, we always uh, say that sometimes uh, the airlines treat passengers as freight that complains. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it complains because of time. Mm -hmm. Freight doesn't complain. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can deliver in a reliable way and, and fairly quickly in order, in order to keep up with the needs of the customer, Mm -hmm. um, that's fine. The, the average speed of the railways 
in North America hasn't changed in 100 years. It's 26 miles per hour. Yeah. That's the average system speed. Yeah. And, you know, we, we don't need to speed that up. Uh, trucks, you know, average speed of a truck going down the road is high. But if you take the, the uh, you know, stops and, and city mm-hmm. parts and so on, uh, I'm sure they'd be very lucky to do more than maybe 70 or 80 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Uh, an airship at 145 kilometers an hour mm-hmm. would be extremely fast for cargo. So just a note on, you still need lubrication in an engine and with propellers and stuff. So there's still an oil com, uh, component that, that's necessary. Is that <laughs> is that something that can be replaced too with, with technology? Well, it's a, I'm, that's not my field, but, you know, brushless motors certainly seem to, I've had a, a seating fan here I've never done anything to for 25 years. So uh, uh, the lubrication doesn't seem to be that big of a problem. Yeah, okay, but and you can sure. use it for propellers and things like that. Where, where <laughs> but you that, certainly, yeah. you know, maintenance is important and inspection. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an aircraft still, yeah. so it's going to have regular inspections because of safety. So once it's built, like, and we, we use oil resources, of course, to run our hydro plants or our whole system and everything. So there is an oil component that goes into everything that's built, whether it's a sure. solar panel, battery, whatever. But once that's built, then you're saying that that can operate basically on a zero emission over its lifetime? Yes. Wow. Essentially have zero emissions. And, and what's the lifetime uh, of an airship then, like this regularly, properly maintained? I would say that you are going to get at least 20 years, uh, but it could be 30. Uh, of course, after 20 years, you know, as technology advances, that airship may get uh, decommissioned just because it's not efficient anymore compared to a new one. Or parts but, might swap out over time where the airship looks like it's, it's lasted 50 years, but the parts within <laughs> it have, have sort of been swapped out and upgraded as it goes. But I'd say, you know, as long as airplanes last. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the problem with airplanes is that, you know, the more hours you have on them, the greater the number of, of inspections and, yeah. and uh, checks have to be done. So, your maintenance cost increases as the airplane gets older mm. to the point where it's better off just to buy a new one. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the airships, uh, not quite the same. I mean, they're not pressurized. You only fly at about 2,000 meters or below that. How, how, uh, how many? How is that, what's that in a mile? Oh, well, it'd be like, uh, under well, about a mile. Okay. So 5,000 feet roughly and, and below. And airplanes th- fly at 30,000 feet? Yeah. Like that. <laughs> and of course they're pressurized and depressurized yeah. on every flight. Well, that that does a lot of uh of um, uh, stress on the metal. Mm-hmm. Uh you don't get that stress on an airship's metal. So uh, so when we see like a, a football game, we see the blimp go by, the Goodyear blimp. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's you know, we we can sort of see how high cuz they show uh, an up shot of of where it is in the sky as well. Yeah. So is that about uh, the height you're talking about? Yeah, that would be that height, or it, again, it really depends on a bit mm-hmm. on where the winds are, because yeah. they may want to move up or down a bit. But you can really see it, like if they're if they're going by. Oh yeah, like you could look <laughs> up and you say, "Oh, look at that!" And it looks like a you probably wave to people in it at that height. Uh, I've kidded people that we may have a new term called shadow pollution. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing with, re- but it's good because it reflects sunlight too, which we need to cool the earth again, right? So all that big white reflective material that's hauling our stuff around and not causing the problems otherwise. Well, certainly, uh, yeah. uh, it certainly doesn't cause the problems, but the, 
the biggest thing is the kind of opportunities it opens up. Yeah. Well, it, oh, seems, so, it seems to work on every level, just as I think about it now, too. Like even that, the, the heat of the light and all that. They're, they're trying to release reflective materials in the world to temporarily reflect a lot of sunlight to you know, create a quicker cooling of the earth. And yeah. so if you get rid of airplanes and the pollution they're creating and just put this kind of thing into operation, I think that would do both things at once right there. <laughs> well, I would certainly less the emissions. Uh, I, I'll, uh, I think the jury's out on how well, much you, reflective power you Well, you get can sell that. that to a politician, though. They're not, <laughs> I'll let you know in a little secret. They're not that bright. And if it sounds good and they can sell it to their people, you know, it's a, that's a good talking point. <laughs> Might make all the difference. Anyway, I kid politicians a lot. Um, <laughs> well, you got thick, they have to have thick skin. Oh, they're better. Yeah, if, if they can't take anything from me, then, uh, <laughs> then I'm surprised they got where they are. So, um, yeah, so so these are, okay, the other question, I guess, is, yeah, do they blow around in the wind because they're so, like a balloon, you let a balloon go and the, the wind just takes it, or, or a hot air balloon has to go with the wind by default. Um, what's the deal with airships and how come they can well, go wherever they want? Well, there's two things. I mean, first of all, you know, a, a balloon... It's very, very light. Uh, it doesn't have much mass. Okay. If you get into what would be a cargo airship, uh, especially a rigid airship, and there's two kinds. You know, the one that you see at the football game is a blimp. It has no real structure inside. It's just a big gas bag or a big balloon with, oh, okay. with a, a gondola attached to it. Okay. But we're looking at rigid airships like the older Zeppelins, mm. where you have a metal frame, mm -hmm. and it takes all the stresses, and, and you have a dozen gas cells or more inside the hull that gives you the lift. So as a result of that, uh, there's more weight to overcome. Uh, these airships were about 50% dead weight. So if you have an airship that's going to carry 30 tons, it would weigh 30 tons. So your total mass is 60 tons. Well, you don't get blown around quite the same when you weigh 60 tons as you do if you only weigh you know, a few ounces, okay. like a, a toy balloon. And of course, uh, you'll have lots of motors attached to it with propellers designed to, to fight the, uh, uh, the wind or, uh, or to move you forward. So they'll be very controllable. Uh, and they do get better uh, as they get bigger. That's really one of the interesting aspects of airships. They're, they are like ships of the ocean. Uh, the bigger they are, the better, mm. both in terms of economics, but also in terms of stability and uh, the, the ability to uh, withstand uh, the elements. I think I was never more kind of disappointed than when I got on one of these river boats. Here, the the river was it the uh, well, uh, the whatever paddle wheel queen, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's a big barge, but you're on the river, which is flowing and moving. And you step onto one of these, and you stand there in the middle. You're moving along, and it's like you're in a building. You're not moving at all. <laughs> and I was kind of well, like, well, what's the point? Like, what's the... Well, an airship would be somewhat like that yeah. because uh, there, there's no vibration and they're very, very quiet. And, of course, uh, they don't, you know, the turbulence of the air aren't going to affect the, the airship because of its size. Are they aerodynamic uh, too? So well, you, they are. So you point it into the wind and the wind will go around it like a car and it doesn't affect it as much? Yeah, this is why, the, you know, the tube shape or the cigar shape airship Mm -hmm. It's because the the drag of the vehicle is the cross section, mm -hmm. and so uh, you know a sphere 
uh, with the same cross-section as a, as a cigar shape, but have almost the same drag. Hmm. So this is where the benefit of having a, a cigar shape, but it also means that you need to keep the nose pointed into the wind when you're on the ground as well. Okay. And, and that's why you know, you'll see pictures of airships on the ground are attached to a, to a mooring mask. And as the wind changes, the, the airship will rotate around the mast to have its nose into the wind. Okay, so why, ground crew, uh, watch your head in shifting <laughs> winds? <laughs> well, in fact, this is one of the things that we've been working on because that's okay for a small advertising blimp. But yeah. if you're starting to move 30 tons of cargo, uh, you can't have people on the ground at risk. Yeah. And you have to keep the airship uh, held down. So our proposal is to have the airship land on a turntable. Okay. And once it's attached to the turntable, if the airship moves, anyone who's on the turntable moves with it. Right, right. So it's no yeah. risk to the people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And also the turntable would allow the airship to, to again, gradually shift if, it has, if the wind changes so that it keeps pointed into the uh, wind. Right. Okay, so as far as cargo, um, I guess we always think that the blimp part of it or the, the big... The big uh, the air, the capacity that is mm-hmm. that's holding the hydrogen or the whatever it is that's keeping it up is a closed system, and then the gondola underneath or the the compartment uh, is where the people all go and stuff. But where does cargo go? Do you do you get to access part of the larger aspect of the airship in a rigid design to put well, cargo into? Well, again, you have to have a cargo bay, and it's going to be at the bottom of the airship because that's where the center of gravity should be. Mm-hmm. And also get things on and off easily. So it's going to be at the bottom. Uh, it'll just be built into the frame of the airship. So uh, it goes inside. So yeah, that's neat because I always maybe. wondered if it, it can or not. Because if you're only limited to what's un- hanging underneath it, they never mm-hmm. it never seems like enough space. Well, again, you have to remember the proportions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sixty or the thirty ton lift airship that we're talking about uh, would be roughly six hundred feet long. Mm-hmm. So it's like two football fields long. Yeah. And so the cargo space, you know, that's the 30 tons, which is about one and a half tractor trailer loads. Okay. So it's not very hard to get, you know, and there are, a tractor trailer is 53 feet long. That's mm-hmm. the, the truck box. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be too hard to have several of those spaces below your airship to put cargo on. There's, there's lots and lots of room. So you can lift quite a bit then? with, with Oh, yeah. Well, if, if you go back in 85 years ago, the the old Zeppelins, the, the biggest ones, would carry 70 tons of useful lift. Okay. Uh, they had it configured into, you know, places for people to sleep and a, a kitchen and, and a, a big dining area mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, we obviously would use this for cargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 70 tons of useful lift, uh, and, and they would fly all the way from Germany to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil in yeah. one fell swoop. Yeah. So they have long endurance. Uh, low fuel consumption, even notwithstanding the fact that they're, they can get along with hydrogen nicely, they don't burn a lot of fuel to begin with because your lift is free. Mm-hmm. So it's like a ship of the ocean again. You yeah, you don't have to keep floating. airborne through thrust. You can just, it, it just is airborne. Exactly. So, yeah. the, uh, so the actual elements and the, you know, the, the aspects of an airship uh, have tremendous benefits. One of the things I've been interested in for a long time is the movement of fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Now, we now use tractor trailers, refrigerated tractor trailers, mm-hmm. to bring in things from California and Mexico and Florida and so on. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty long distances, and the diesel is used in the, for the truck engine and 
diesel for the refrigeration unit, so it burns a lot of carbon. Uh, an airship would be able to make that trip, say, from Winnipeg uh, to Mexico, straight up south of us, in about 24 hours. And a truck would take three days. Yeah. So it would be uh, on, you know, the, it'd be more frequent, fresher product. And because of the lack of vibration, it would actually uh, be able to carry riper food at a better quality. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, bred to be tough anymore. (laughs) Well, I like to say that the tomatoes wouldn't just look like tomatoes, they'd actually taste like tomatoes. Yeah, and the peaches would have juice again that would drip (laughs) down your hand when you're eating it. Precisely. So, you know, that's one of the things. And, And for us here in Canada, you know, we import fruits and vegetables 12 months a year. Mm-hmm. And but we also are a big food exporter, and mm-hmm. the tropics are short of protein. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that we could import fruits and vegetables from the Caribbean or South America or Central America and send down things like pork and, and poultry and eggs and dairy products and things we produce well here. Yeah, and grains, you know. Yeah, yeah the grains will go by ship. I mean, we're not going to use an airship to carry. Uh, that's a very storable product. doesn't need airship uh, speed or or. Well, that's not a good selling point. You got to get rid of that idea right now. You gotta, no, you have to move grain. You got to get rid of ships. <laughs> we'll, we'll put the grains through the hogs. Well, first. I'll tell you what: a ship without a, a functioning diesel engine isn't taking your grain very far. Whereas your airship will have it there in a day. Like, come on, man. <laughs> well, it's, it's true, but you know, yeah. we're we're back to the economics. Of well, and then the so. farmers are. Do you want that grain sitting in your bin all winter? You know, and and taking up your storage space and you having to continually dry it if it's humid weather weather and all that? Or do you want to sell it and move it now? And they'd all be like, I'd rather not have the bins. I'd like to get it. They'd love to get a, you know, to be running a combine that offloads straight into one of your airships. Well, the little secret that that any farmer will tell you (laughs) is that the price of grain tends to rise over the course of the winter Mm -hmm. to give you a payment for your storage. Yeah. So, uh, well, then. But that's just offsetting costs. So I don't understand what the point of that is. Anybody who knows wholesale, like you get it off, you wholesale it, and you and you, you know, turn around your factory and start and keep producing stuff, right? Yeah. And who? What farmer wants to sit around all winter watching a computer screen anyway? Well, <laughs> Wait for I, I, a number you know, to adjust. The, the uh, farmers are very sophisticated these days. Oh yeah, I know. They're but like they, small grain companies themselves. Yeah, but it's like you know, I don't know. Now they're their own brokers, right? So they just took on another job. It's like you got more freedom, but you got more jobs. So. Well, I think the future of farming is more like uh, a general contractor, where you hire people to do this and you hire people to do that, yeah. and uh, you keep it all together. But with now with machines that are running off GPS and and self automating anyway, that's where you know that's why a farmer can have seven sections and and you know it's, it's it has to get easier for them in some regard. So I think it's just we don't actually need farmers anymore. We just need managers and uh, and machine uh, technicians. I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to be the trajectory, right? Because before it took a lot of people on the land and small holdings to make it go. Now it's like night and day. So I think the eclipse comes and it's just like, well, uh, sorry, farmer. I know you worked hard to get all that land, but... To be honest, you don't. We don't really need you. We're just, you know, we're the grain company, and we're going to just run the land too. You yeah. know, I I think that won't happen, and part <laughs> of the reason is that uh, you know one of the great variables uh, in agriculture is the weather, mm-hmm. uh, and you can have certainly you know factory type uh, management of of 
confine uh, livestock production. Uh, but when it comes to field crops, uh, we still need the people with the experience and the skills and the judgment mm-hmm. uh, who are out there today. Oh, well, Elon Musk is going to fix the weather. <laughs> if that's the problem, then that's what we should be looking at, right? <laughs> you know, why bother with an umbrella when you can just move the cloud you know, or bring well, the cloud you when you need it? <laughs> yeah, this Earth thing is just a, a play toy for uh, for uh, you know string theorists, string theory people. Yeah. How do you work? How do you make it all? Or is that right? I guess string theory isn't even a thing. I guess I should be saying, uh, what is the other one? The quantum mechanics, isn't it? That's the the great be all end all. Uh, perhaps, but you're uh, you're you're out of my pay grade. When you're yeah, getting I, into topics. <laughs> I, just, I just listen to people talk about these things, and I'm like, okay, whatever. You still got to go outside and move a stone if you want the stone moved. So, um, whether you do it through through gas or through your own leg energy, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so um, so yeah, okay, so airships and stuff like in the north you're talking about where we can't build like we've seen this with the railway that goes up to churchill where the company that was out of the states that bought it where the unirail or something i can't remember the name of them but omnitrax omnitrax yeah and they just basically said whatever we're not fixing it and and and, uh just sat on it and and that was like just cruel but they were they faced the same reality that who operated before was a via rail and uh it was actually CN. Uh, it was built as a government railway. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting story because if you look at the railway track, uh, it actually is uh, making a beeline for uh, York Factory, mm-hmm. which, of course, is now just a historical uh, site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually had the, the, the groundwork built all the way out there, and then they found out that the harbor uh, wasn't suitable. It would silt in from the bay okay. and would also silt in from the river. Mm-hmm. And they realized they could never make the harbor work which is why at Gillum, uh, they said, okay, we've got to go to Churchill. And they made a, a right or a left turn mm-hmm. and go straight north to Churchill. Well, the difficulty is that's the area with, that the railway is vulnerable because that goes over a frozen peat bog. Yeah, so every and, winter and summer, it, it changes constantly. and yeah. Well, it's the, the, the active layer of mm-hmm. permafrost is becoming deeper uh, with climate change. And of course, in that particular case, it was a, a washout really that that mm-hmm. affected them. But the the track itself, because it's on uh, you know uh, unstable ground, uh, the track is unstable. Yeah, and, and trains are heavy, right? That go over that. Yes, and heavy. and you know they've they've done a lot to try and shore it all up and mm-hmm. and open. But I think what's really most important lesson of the uh, the break in the uh, the rail line is how quickly the port or the town of Churchill went from being sort of a prosperous, uh, regular place mm-hmm. to being another remote community mm-hmm. where the food price, you know, doubled or tripled and people started leaving because there was no work and mm-hmm. opportunities uh, started to scale back. And, you know, and how p- happy the people were when the rail line was reconnected Yeah, because that's the connection to, you know, the international market. Yeah, And if you don't have transportation, uh, you don't have an economy. And, and, and they that, couldn't bring it in in that time because the harbor wasn't open, so that you couldn't just run a ship in there. Well, they they you know three months a year, or so you yeah. can, and they did bring in certain things. But yeah. even with that, you know, it, it, the break in transportation is also problematic. Well, you that's know, we like that's like things. having today what your furnace go out. 
in your house. <laughs> it just like it goes from a nice, comfortable place to be to freezing cold and inhabitable. It, right. Yeah. And and in the case of the, of the the north, you know, we have so many of our communities. There's actually some 292 remote communities in Canada, mm-hmm. and you know, those that are on the coast get annual sea lifts. Those that aren't have to depend on the winter roads. And so you have maybe, well, it used to be you have guaranteed six weeks of operations here in the south. Now we're lucky to get three, four weeks yeah. of good use out of the ice roads, and it's, it's shrinking. And this week and would becoming, be one of those weeks. So there's well, a busy people now? Or? <laughs> well, this is certainly a good week to make ice, mm-hmm. and, and that'll help a lot because the ice roads even this year were a good two weeks behind mm-hmm. in opening because of the mild weather we had in December and January. Yeah. Uh, but once the sun starts getting stronger, you know, once we get past the hell of Valentine's and the sun is getting stronger, any uh, exposed area of dirt or what have you starts to absorb the heat and all of a sudden you've got melting. Mm-hmm. So the, and mud. Uh, the, yeah, and then you get mud and, and you get, yeah. Right. And of course, you know, the ice roads or the winter roads, they're, they're mainly built over land. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, marshes and muskegs and, and what have you. Uh, and again, one of the problems we've seen uh, coming up is that the snowfall coming early, uh, to the degree it insulates those uh, muskegs and what have you, they don't freeze down the same way. Hmm. So again, getting the, the winter road uh, frozen, you know, drive over them with skidoos and pack the snow to, so mm-hmm. it freezes down lower and, until you get enough capacity to actually bring a, a vehicle over that, uh, it takes time. So you need and cold weather in October, November, December. Well, to we were set actually, yeah. I was talking to the guys here, and they were saying how that little span we had at the end of October, early November, was really cold. Was yeah. wonderful, yeah, because that allowed them to get on this early, and it froze things down before they had snow cover. Yeah, uh, but then it got mild after that. Yeah. So and and the end of the winter rose generally is about mid March because again by that time mm-hmm. the sun is now getting really strong. Yeah, yeah. But the risk, of course, is also an issue because the ice is not the same on the rivers and, and lakes where you do have to cross. And you know, we've got some instances of, uh, of vehicles that have gone through already this year. Not in Manitoba necessarily, mm-hmm. but one up in Fort Chippewa uh, was one example I saw, and there's another one uh, somewhere. But so yeah, and, this these, is a, and these ex- exploitation TV shows like Ice Road Truckers and all that, <laughs> you know, they love it when that happens. Oh, we got a problem. But doesn't that hang up the rest of the trucks behind them? Yes. So absolutely. that's like not something you go and make a TV show about and celebrate. That's like get a crane in here, move the truck, and let's keep going. <laughs> well, you know? getting a crane is another issue too. Well, yeah, I'm talking, you know, fantastical. But the an airship lifted out? 30 tons, yes, it could, I mean, technically. But you wouldn't uh, need to anyway, you'd just be flying over with your stuff anyway. Well, that's right, yeah. if, you, if you had an airship, why would you bother? So I mean, how, many we'll airships, still... how many airships would it take to replace how much we take up north, just in Manitoba? Like how many? Well, we, we did a, some analysis here with 30-ton lift airships, and we think with uh, three 30-ton lift airships, 
uh, we could serve virtually all the remote communities in Manitoba. And how long would that take? That would just be year round, right? That doesn't. It'll be year round. Yeah, yeah no, they we'd be bringing in things all the time. So, so it's a rel- It makes ice roads a completely thing of the past. It's just done. Yes and no. I mean, the the, the the indigenous people still want to you know visit each other in their communities. Well, can't they go around but in you, smaller airships? No, but they could build lighter ice roads for you know pickup trucks and uh, yeah. and and SUVs. Well, and what's so wrong? On. What is wrong with uh, the idea of smaller airships for human travel? Again, it's back to economies of size, yeah, and how uh, well they sustain such things as the wind and so on, and of course the cost. You know, mm-hmm. it is an aircraft. Uh, we calculate, uh, as a rule of thumb, uh, the the cost of an airship is about one million dollars uh, per ton of lift. Okay. So if you have a a thirty you know ton lift airship, um, it could be somewhere between thirty million and sixty million. Uh, but to give you a, a comparison, a civilian uh, Hercules uh, is will set you back a uh, hundred million mm-hmm. and only lift twenty tons. Yeah, and, and it uses burned. gas constantly. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> the airship wouldn't wouldn't use even as much fuel as they use yeah. for one of their four engines. So yeah. Well, exactly, and that's the thing. And and not only does it use fuel, <clears throat> excuse me, but the market drives that cost up and down at, at, at its own whims. So you can't even say in the future how much an airplane is going to cost to operate. No. Uh, and, and, of course, there's also restrictions on, on runways. You mm-hmm. have to have a long enough runway. The bigger the airplane, the yeah, longer Yeah, more the oil, more gas put into that, that and, infrastructure. And, if it's, it's and if it's a gravel runway, you're not going to land any jet on it. Yeah. So, you know, why again... Don't, why are people, like, are, are people still... Looking at you and going, I, I don't know, it's crazy, it's too much money. And, it's, and you're like looking at them going, are you, are you, we're talking like a, a billion dollars versus a hundred million dollars here, pal. Like, you know, like are, are people having difficulty with this? Because I mean, I, I watched the little documentary that you sent over to oh, look yeah. at. And, you know, with the, the background and everything and, and just more we're talking now and you're giving me, you know, we're talking about road building and we're talking about costs of, of operating um, jet fueled aircraft and, and the whole, and I'm like, I'm like, who, who's having difficulty with this concept still? Because I'm not well, very bright, and I'm not. <laughs> you know, I think in some ways, you know, the the, the airship uh, is suffering from a lot of misunderstandings. Uh, in the first place, you know, people don't understand why the airships uh, went away. Mm-hmm. You know, why do we uh, not have the giant uh, rigid airships anymore? Oh, they burn up in New York, in New well, Jersey. You know, that... Don't everybody know that? Everybody's exactly. not that film, well, you know, it's like, that, And that's one of the things that, yeah. you know, is there. Young people don't say that anymore. You know, yeah. I talk to young people, we talk about the, the yeah. Hindenburg accident, and they say, well, so what? Yeah. You well, know, even people my age, like I'm ago. 50, and I, for a long time I thought they, these things just blew up or whatever, and then I get curious and I look into it, and it wasn't it wasn't that in any way. It was, uh, no, it was, it was the was, the envelope yeah. that would caught fire. Yeah, so uh, it's like not even, it's just, yeah, it's not even a thing. Well, and but you know, myths and misunderstandings can last a long, long time. Yeah. And you know, you only have to look at Trump in the U.S. Some of his crazy lies are going to be out there for a long time. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, people once they accept things, it's hard to change their mind. But in the case of airships, you know, part of it is that the people didn't understand why they went away, mm-hmm. and it was really a case of the jet airplane. But the jet airplane, you know, killed everything. You know, transcontinental rain trains went away. The 
the ocean liners went away, mm-hmm. nothing could withstand the onslaught of the jet age. Right. But, you know, today we're not looking at moving passengers per se. We're mm-hmm. looking at cargo. And, of course, uh, these days uh, jets are under fire because of uh, cargo or carbon emissions mm-hmm. and the damage they do. So, uh, but to go back to the, uh, the reasons, uh, when you, if you go back 85 years ago, uh, you know, the, the cutting-edge automobile was a Model A Ford. Mm-hmm. And you think about cars today, and, you know, uh, they were able to fly airships from uh, Germany to uh, Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, since that time, you know, we put a man on the moon. And that was some time ago now. Yeah. Uh, you know, they put a, a, a robot on Mars. I mean, surely uh, the technology is there to make very safe, very efficient and good airships, and Canada needs them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've tried to raise the issue with people to look at the dire conditions in the in the remote communities. And today, you know, we we see a lot of emphasis on getting vaccinations to those folks because not that they're more susceptible per se, but they've got terrible living conditions. The the houses are overcrowded. Mm-hmm. They have underlying health problems like diabetes because of bad food and and not enough food. How can we expect people, what is the cultural and the societal reason that we expect people to live in these remote communities when there's so little opportunity and the living conditions are so horrible and we can only get them stuff once a year? What is the, what's the underlying concept behind that? Can you, is that well, something that illustrated? There's two things. I think first place is, you know, you have to understand that the people who live there, they want to live there. Mm-hmm. You know, their ancestors are buried there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's their home, mm-hmm. uh, so they don't want to move. And so their indeed, life is 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 good, right? Like they well, put it this way: that that's their home. Yeah, uh, you know they may and they not don't be just very sit happy. there. Like like we we all think, well, we're just sending them stuff. They're not just sitting in their house waiting for an ice road truck or something to come along. What are they doing all day? Well, just for people I, to find out. I, I don't know per se, but you know, they there is fishing goes on. There's yeah. there's some activity, but in truth, is there's a huge amount of unemployment. Yeah. And the unemployment's there because there's no jobs. Yeah. And there's no jobs because there's no trade. There's no yeah. connection with the outer world. And there's no trade because there's no transport. So you're fixing this. And and this well, can give, well, but this can open up, oppor- hope. it opens opportunity. If if people can access those areas, you might say, well, I'm going to set up a factory up there because it's the land's cheaper, it's easier to operate, and I can get everything in and out easily. That, well, that's a whole you- different ballgame than... Uh, if I go set up shop up there, I'm going to be trapped. Exactly. Yeah. But, but let me give you one example where I see you know, it would have a tremendous change. Uh, about half the houses in the north are in need of some repair. Mm-hmm. And some of them are in such terrible shape that they should be you know, condemned and, and taken down. But they're still lived in because there's such a house shortage. Mm-hmm. And about 25% of all the houses have, uh, you know, uh, more than than what you call the the normal sort of number of people. In mm-hmm. fact, most of them have somebody living sleeping in the living room. Mm-hmm. And you know the problem there is you can only build houses with the materials you bring in over the ice road. Yeah. Well, how many houses can you build in the course of a year that way? Mm-hmm. And what also happens is we have to send up you know trades like plumbers and electricians, what have you. Because the people who are there cannot get enough hours of work to qualify yeah. for those trades. Yeah, you can't build a house, so, rip it down, build it, rip it down, build it, just to get experience. You have so, to live in it. 
So imagine now a situation where we have an airship delivering materials every week, and you could have continuous year-round construction of building houses. The people who are there could get their red seal, qualifications for trades, and then also go on and, and work other places. Up so, north, because you can keep bringing stuff in. So even just you know, <laughs> you know. The, the airship, just to yeah. change the housing situation yeah. is enough justification, but it would also greatly lower the cost of food. And, yeah. and again, most Canadians really aren't aware of this, but uh, the government, on our behalf, spends $100 million every year just subsidizing the transport of food to the north. Yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't like, have to do any of that if we had airships. Yeah, I, I know. It just it eliminates everything. And is the house building, uh, like what is it, the, the House Builders Association or whatever down here, are they behind you? Like, <laughs> I've never actually asked them. Like, uh, that's a big, because once you start getting, because they're building like, you know, as you know here, subdivisions. And we're going to, oh, we're taking over this field and we're going to build a million <laughs> houses. Oh, my God. So what if they all look the same? We're building as progress. Put that on your economic chart. You know, and it's like the builders go, yeah, geez, put that on the plus side. Oh, look at this new home building construction is going up, up, up. But it would go up, up, up like crazy up north, right? Well, I've talked to the people here who's, who ship the lumber up to the north. Yeah. And and they're very sensitive and, and sympathetic to the idea of of because they know how bad it is mm-hmm. and you know and how few shipments actually go. Yeah. In fact, you could also take in some cases prefab houses. Well, there's your the industry behind you. Enough. Not only do you have the builders, but the material suppliers would be behind you. Yeah. And these guys all vote, and they all have politicians over for dinner <laughs> to have their private little backroom cigar chomping here's here's what you're gonna do this year johnny you know you know like they're gonna tell them what for we're gonna develop north we're developing the north now and we're using airships and get over it politicians go and tell your people whatever they need to hear well you know maybe you (laughs) just ask everybody listening to this broadcast to call their mp and say why aren't we using airships yeah why is why can't why can't i get up there easily to do more manitobaville (laughs) stories why do i have to fly expensively or wait for the train to work or get on a, a semi or whatever it is. Why can't I just go on the next air shipment and uh, and go up there and, and cover a lot of communities and, and get stories and stuff? Like even my industry, like the, the storytelling industry of radio, TV, uh, film, you know? Well, I think, you know, the kind of change that we would look at, and I'll use an analogy that people will be familiar with. If you go back to Winnipeg before the railway came through, mm-hmm. Uh, the only activity here was fur trade, yeah. and the only transport was canoes. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that that was the only kind of good that would could afford to move by canoe for that distance. Yeah. Well, that's all we had. Yeah. Once the railway came in... Well, we wouldn't know, have even had the railway. The they were putting it up to Selkirk, and they were going to go across to Delta, and they were going to go across to Fort Coppell. And the Winnipeg guys went up with bags of money and said, no, come down this way. <laughs> like they did, and they said, "Well, no, we're going this way." And they came with a bigger bag of money and said, "I think you want to go this way." And they said, "Yeah, I think you're right. Let's go that way now." And that's why it went to Winnipeg and South Brandon and and Regina, and they took a big risk, but it worked out. But yeah, it's like you know, okay, so they bribed some guys. Big, where's your bag of money, Mr. Prentice? Well, <laughs> that's all. Apparently, that's all it takes. <laughs> but they did it with the railway. They did it so easy. It's just like, here, look at look at this, guys. You know, look at these dollars. Well, and, yeah. you know, I would take one step before uh, that to, to look at and say, would the railways ever have been built to Western Canada 
if the government of Canada hadn't gotten behind it and strongly supported it and encouraged it and subsidized it. Well, they were scared out of their minds that the United States was going to push up through the prairies. They'd already yeah, pushed up through point. Alberta. The, the private sector would never have built the railways without the government. No, no. And, the, and we'd all be in the United States right now, for sure, especially here. You know, Alberta is, the reason Alberta is different people is because, and I was born out there, they're, they are the U.S. people who came up through the Montana's net and pushed north on this side of the Rockies. And the, and the government at that time saw that and was like, we need to solidify our country with, with something that, that allows us to get back and forth here, whether it's goods, people, troops, whatever. And, and that fear, you know, and then Donald Smith, of course, having set up shop in Winnipeg and getting rich through the HBC before that, you know, really, you know, probably gave them some local sensibility and and said yeah we can do this and we should do this but yeah it's like i mean this is fear too how how can we we're in, we're gonna we're in fear of losing our ice roads our climate's changing it's gone gas well, is going well, away everything the... everything we've relied upon is disappearing before our eyes it's melting away and well, you're coming along one... and you're saying look i got this beautiful we can that's not even a you know what's funny about it it's not like you're sitting here going, look, I got this imaginary new thing that I've drawn on my, on my, on my chart here. You, you know, I mean, you can point, as you do, all over the world and say, well, they're doing it, they're doing it, they're doing it. This is not a complicated, it's not, it's not complicated because we know how to build it. It's not complicated because we know how to fly them. It's not complicated because we need it. And it's, it's how can this be a, a complicated business, political, geo-anything problem with this plan well it's hard to say the you know politicians tend to be fairly short-sighted in terms of you know looking at the political cycle well, that's what the bag of money is for well <laughs> maybe but you know the, like no, even no, if we no. started tomorrow you know yeah. it would be it'd be five years to have an airship so yeah you know the government may you know not want to invest it so well would it take that long to build one what if somebody said well it's not so much to build it no no, no but what if, okay no i'm just hypothetical of course because you know my mind's just i'm free to do this because <laughs> i don't have to do it right but i but i I've, my question then would be if right now today like as soon as we hang up this call you pick up a call and it's u of m and, and different backers and, and they say you know what barry we're gonna we want you to build the first one so Call up whoever you need to, to call up in industry and design and, and and the people who make the materials, whatever. Just just make the first big one that we can start using as soon as it's made and tested. All so, right. Well, then let so me when does the first that. flight happen from that okay. phone call today? Well, the first thing I'd have to do is say, right, we need the money to build a hangar. Oh, well, say they because say, just I'm just saying they green light this. Just say they I green know. light everything. And you say, oh, there's no more obstacles to doing this. So when does the first flight that takes food and materials up north happen? Probably you could do it within three years. Okay. Because you need two years to build a hangar. Mm -hmm. You can't build an airship without a place to build it. Yeah, and you have to protect it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you need, uh, you know, the, but you could do the engineering simultaneously. So do you need the hangar build. before you build the airship? Because obviously you can't, well, can't build the airship outside, right? <laughs> well, at least before you yeah. assemble it, you could yeah. do a lot of engineering in the parts. But that takes yeah. about two years. Okay. And then, you know, you... You could do something with an experimental airship, but before you get to a commercial service, mm -hmm. the airship has to be uh, certified for airworthiness. Mm -hmm. So you're adding another three years at least for that. Really? So, you know, it'd be about five years uh, in total. 
But, you know, if we look back five years, well, mm-hmm. Trump was just campaigning for the presidency. So, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah, know, five years is, is not long a yeah. time. Yeah. But, but then you also get a permanent solution. Mm-hmm. You know, what bothers me about the, the approach the government has taken is, you know, they throw money at, okay, we'll give subsidy for food transport. Oh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll give money to fix the water. We'll, yeah. we'll give money to this and so on. And nothing ever leads to anything that's a, 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 a improvement that is mm-hmm. permanent. Yeah. It's all just Band-Aids. When did you start, and, when did you start this, the idea in telling people that this should be started? How long ago was that? Well, it was actually uh, 20 years ago. So we could and, have been for 15 years now just having airships fly every, all the stuff around. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. could have. Uh, and, there, you, there you go. Thanks, government. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, though, 20 years ago when I started this, I, I'll tell you, you know, uh, I had the advantage of, you know, being at the university. Mm-hmm. So with tenure. So I can come up with ideas and not necessarily going to get you know, uh, shown the door immediately because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first came out with this, uh, people looked at me like I had two heads. You yeah. know, and they, in fact, I, I, in that video you probably saw that I talk about the five phases of a new idea. Mm-hmm. And that first phase, people will laugh at you. You know, they think, oh, it's just crazy idea. Jimmy Page, and your band's going to go down like a Led Zeppelin. Ooh, exactly. Great idea, great name. Yeah. And then <laughs> in the second phase, you know, people will, will shun you. Yeah. And they don't want to be, you know, seen talking to you because people might think they're crazy. Yeah. So they, they shun you. And then in the third phase, people start arguing with you. And they, they start to try and convince you, you know, come to your senses, give up on this idea, you know, mm-hmm. and at least they become engaged. In the fourth phase, uh, they join you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in the fifth phase of an idea, they they try to get rid of you because you know it was their idea all along. Yeah, they want to push you out so they can get the credit. Yeah, <laughs> but you know we're firmly in. And the sixth four. phase, of course, is it becomes a normal everyday thing. Well, and yeah, only people who are curious about the history of it actually find out what happened in the other four phases. But the rest yeah. of the people are just getting around on airships now. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's not like. Uh, I'm the only one who has uh, interest in this. My interest in this started a long time ago, mm-hmm. but about 20 years ago, I could see that given climate change in this direction, uh, we weren't going to have ice roads one day, mm-hmm. and we have to start doing something. And, yeah. you know, people I talk to in, in the area say that we're already five years late mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the ice roads, and uh, they're going to be really touch and go. Uh, if, if this climate change progresses as fast, so there's going to be has... there's going to be a lot of suffering up north. There's going to be a lot, and we saw that with Churchill. That's the equivalent of their coronavirus down here. Is, well, they're already suffering. Well, but that's when we really felt it. Like the news started yeah. covering it and going, and people up there calling down, going, "Well, I can talk to you by these great telecommunications, thanks, but I can't eat it." You know, right. we're, when we're hungry and we're cold, we're going to be cold in the winter and. You know what are we what are we going to do? And people down here started mobilizing, and going, "Geez, we got to help them." You know, we got to we got to do something, because suddenly it was a thing that everybody saw. And well, and the fear that, factor that builds railways across the countries and stuff is has to be applied to that and say, you know, we have to put a face on these on these people, and show people down here and say, "Look, your politician down here isn't doing anything." 
help these poor people up there? Well, there is a fear factor that, that may affect uh, the outcome, and that is as the climate change progresses, uh, the Northwest Passage is opening up to more and more traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as it opens up, uh, it also opens up the question of security. Yeah, we need, sovereignty. We need, yeah, we need some of those Nazi airships of our own going up there and threatening ships and stuff. And saying, <laughs> well, pay attention, uh, pay attention, China and Russia. Well, you know, this, you know, it'd be a, a more affordable way. Is a military of, base too? Could, would the military use this to, to do Oh, that? absolutely. I mean, you can drop bombs I, from them. The, they proved that in World War I. Well, they can do all kinds of stuff with them. I don't think they're really very good as bombers. The, uh, <laughs> well, that's that the idea of it would be. Years ago, <laughs> but but they they're very good for logistics. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and part of the cost of maintaining people in the north is just bringing up fuel and food and supplies. Yeah. It's horribly expensive. What about and, those? What are those HUACs or whatever? The, what are those planes that the military uses? That they just fly all day at high altitude. Uh, what are they called? The, uh, you know, the ones though that they where they do the radar oh, they, and all that. Yes, uh, they're just a regular, uh, like a yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, but they just fly all at high altitude in circles all day and and maintain right. what's going on. Just, Can airships do the same thing? Oh sure. In fact, the the U.S. has actually invested in the past in this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these things, they had something, a project they were working on for Afghanistan, but then when the war ended, they canned it. Uh, but, you know, this idea has been around for a long time of a surveillance airship. Mm-hmm. And they were used, in, again, most people think that the airship age sort of ended with Hindenburg. Mm-hmm. But during the Second World War, up until 1962, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. Navy had a whole fleet of blimps uh, that would go out uh, looking for enemy submarines, yeah, and also escorting the ships across the ocean. and And the ships escorted by the airships uh, very seldom got attacks mm-hmm. because, again, the airship could see, you know, and monitor where the subs were. Uh, they they kind of lost their their use when the uh, nuclear submarines came along, mm-hmm. and they it ended the program. But uh, they actually proved very well. Uh, the U.S. built somewhere around three hundred of these Navy blimps yeah. and they were pretty big. They would lift about 15 tons. But so for, they were, yeah. So for, for patrolling the North, like the, uh, the Arctic passages and that, um, yeah. you don't, uh, yeah, they're not transport. Like China's not coming across with subs carrying stuff. They're, they're, they're above the water and ships and container <laughs> ships. So they're easy to see. So you could use this easily for this. Well, and purpose. also we need some way if you know what if one of those ships hits a, uh, an uncharted reef yeah. and you get oil spilling all over the place. Yeah. How do you get uh, staff and, and equipment up to deal with that? Well, I guess you, you know, could right use, now you we could don't use, have a way. You know, and a good way of controlling shipping through there is to say, hey, we got these airships and we're going to guide you guys through here, <laughs> right? And then they're well, like, then they sign up to your program. Yes, get us through safe. Okay, make sure your tariffs are paid and all your stuff's paid and all your licenses are in order. And no problem, we'll get you through safe. And, but that, that's, you know, regulation like that seems to control geopolitical stuff pretty nicely. Well, you, you may be aware that uh, just before Christmas, the Canadian government uh, refused the Chinese company's bid to buy a gold mine in okay. the uh, Arctic. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the argument was made for security reasons. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, the Chinese have looked at Well, what's at the, the security uh, problem? They can't get down to Winnipeg anyway. <laughs> it's like, well, it's like what, what are we worried about? The Chinese are going to get there and suddenly they got they got a, a road? <laughs> no. You know, uh, you, you have to ask the uh, the people involved in the wargaming. But but the, the reality is that, uh, you know, there is a concern yeah. within the government these days about sovereignty in the North. Yeah, and we've and, had that forever. Like this, it, this, my whole life, they've always wondered how they're going to protect... The Arctic Passage, you know. Well, is so well, far typically, away. you know, the the approach of the of the government and the military has been that we don't have to because uh, old man winter does it for us. Yeah, and it yeah. gets so frozen up that nobody can get access. But, but once it started now that opening, that's up. changing. Yeah, the U.S. Know, the, even said, "Oh, it's ours," because we're going yeah. there. We're there, so it's ours by default. And we're like, "Well, no. again, you know, maybe that same thing." Maybe that'll be the trigger that causes the government to get serious with the airships. But yeah. the benefits would go way beyond, you know, any security military issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about the remote communities. Well, I'm, the just other trying, one, I'm just trying to line up big institutions behind you. Like it's some general <laughs> well, going, hey, good idea, let's do it. You maybe know? you've got some friends in the mining industry. Well, Because one of the problems is access. Yeah. And if you look on a map, you'll see that virtually all the mines that are operating in Canada are within 50 miles or less of established infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And the only kind of mines you can operate with an ice road are diamond mines and gold mines. Because it's and heavy. Because like gold's can... heavy when it comes out. No, it's just because <laughs> you can bring everything in on an ice road. You can bring out the annual or the, the yeah. weekly production in a suitcase on a Cessna. Right. So, right. But you can't do that with base metals or, or rare earths and so on. Right. But right. we have lots and lots of known deposits in the north that could be operated with airships. Why don't we just build a, a fort up there, like Fort Knox, and just say, well, that's where the gold is. And Because uh, nobody moves gold anyway. They just keep it in bank vaults. So why can't we just build a bank <laughs> vault up there? <laughs> well, you'll have to talk to my dentist about that. <laughs> he seems to need it. Oh, yeah. Well, little bits, yeah. But, but as far as uh, backing a currency or backing a country or a person who owns gold, it's they don't... You know, everybody says, oh, in, in uncertain times, buy gold. And it's like, well, okay, so uncertain times happen. How do I get my gold now, please? And they're like, well, you can't. It's in France or somewhere. <laughs> you know? And you're like, well, uh, that's not doing me much good, even though it's worth $3,000 an ounce or whatever. I, I think that connection between paper money and gold is uh, discontinued uh, probably 40, 50 years ago now. Yeah, but it's still a valuable uh, resource that people buy in the stock market. I'm just saying sure. you're separated from your asset you know, in all kinds of ways when you, when you buy gold, I'd rather buy a field that has some good soil in it. Well, uh, you know, again, we're, the point is that, uh, lack of access to the North Mm -hmm. means that we don't have the opportunity to create the jobs and and economy that we would have if we could do that resource extraction. Yeah. It makes everything a moot point, right? It's like, well, if you can't do it anyway, what's, you know, that's right. But, and the airship, because, you know, the, they don't take up a lot of uh, space in, in landing activity or roads. So you'd have a fairly small uh, environmental impact as well, and which would be an advantage. So what's, uh, so, the, what's the investment price, um, build an air, air hangar and, and even the first airship of size that you would need? Well, again, you know, if we take the comparison of airplanes, you know, the C-series, uh, it was in the billions. Uh, we don't think it'd be quite that expensive because airships aren't as expensive to build. I mean, first of all, you don't need jet engines, you need just electric motors, and you don't have to have a, a pressure tube. It's a, you know, a space frame that you're building. 
but you do need a big hangar. And, you know, to start things off, there's always that big barrier to entry uh, to do that. But mm-hmm. uh, my guess is that uh, start to finish from, you know, the, the, the first paper clips until you're selling the, uh, the commercial airship out of a factory, it's probably a billion dollars. Okay. And these days, that's not, you know, for financiers and like Elon Musk could cough. Well, you know, there's even an argument that for a lot of these uh, people that they don't even want to look at anything under 200 million because yeah. it's not worth their while. Yeah. So, you know, this is a big project. Uh, and, you know, but there is some one thing that I would emphasize. In all the history that I've studied, there's never been a introduction of a new transportation system that did not have strong government support and encouragement. Mm-hmm. And as long as the government of Canada sits quiet and says nothing, it's very hurtful mm-hmm. because investors don't know, well, will they do their part or will they not do their part? or do they, Will they block it? Will they encourage it? What will they do? Mm-hmm. And so that's actually a problem. And it seems to be very hard to get through the bureaucracy uh, within uh, the government of Canada. So uh, who's, whose desk does this land on? Well, I guess transportation or development or well, that's always a good question because it it could land on the desk of the minister of transport, but also the minister responsible for northern affairs and and indigenous uh, services and the environment, and could land on the the desk of the uh, uh, the engineering and trade and and manufacturing people or or resources Canada. Uh, You know, in some ways, uh, nobody's baby, so nobody touches it, but it actually applies to almost every one of the uh, of the uh, offices and the railways of course back in the day John A Sir John A um, that landed on his desk he made it a priority so could he this did. land could this land on on Trudeau's desk well he could be the uh, the, the Johnny McDonald of the north yeah yeah of whoever all, picks, of all of Canada too yeah. whoever yeah. picks this up you know uh, I think will be uh, recognized in history as, you know, bringing prosperity to the North. Because that's what Rudy talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 this, and it's, but, but, but like you say, as far as hauling things around and stuff, this could, you know, if you want to take something from Winnipeg to Morden, it can really alleviate a lot of problems. Um, no, no, I, w- no. I wouldn't. I w- <laughs> really? You're never going to, you're never going to move anything in an airship where you have an established road. Uh, trucks are cheap. And well, no, but I, I'm talking about so, conceptually. It, it, it's something you can use to move something from somewhere to anywhere else, right? Only if it won't move on a truck. So, for example, you might move a very long wind turbine blade because mm-hmm. it's too long to get down the road system. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is not a replacement for trucks and roads. This is a complement to trucks and roads. Okay. And, and to all other modes of transport. It'll interface with trucks, rail. Air, sea, but as oil and, and things run out too, it, it keeps going. Like we know that, so so long term, it's a permanent solution. Well, that's the, the one of the advantages, yes. But it's so also not, yeah, okay. No, I'm, I'm just in my mind. I'm like, why not just move that up and say, well, you know, we can just eliminate a lot of carbon pollution and stuff too. We can get a lot of these truck drivers driving or working on uh, on on airships as far as. Because there's still jobs and stuff. Somebody has to fly them. Somebody has to maintain them. Somebody oh, has to yeah, load the, them and unload them. And, absolutely. You know. there, in fact, there would be jobs not just in the north. Mm-hmm. There would be a lot of jobs right here in Winnipeg building airships. Yeah. So why the, the government here locally hasn't jumped on this, I have no idea. Because 
you know, we uh, are a manufacturing center, and mm -hmm. we have an aerospace cluster mm -hmm. of Magellan and Boeing and, and Standard Aero. Can and it move steel? steel and stuff like that? Sorry, to do steel, which? Steel, like steel beams and, and things like that? Well, anything, it can move anything up to the weight limit. Uh, whatever that weight limit is uh, on the airship, it'll so, move. So when we built the Human Rights Museum and they had problems getting this, where they get steel from Belgium or somewhere? It was in Europe where they had it all made. And, and they had transportation transportation issues getting it to the site that affected the, the costs and everything like that. But, but, but situations like that, where you, so if you're going to build a massive building, you can actually just airship in the, these huge things that need ships and need big boats and long trains, special trains and all that. Well, there's a term in the, in the transportation industry called BUF. B-U-F. Okay. Stands for big, ugly freight. Yeah. yeah. And uh, airships would be good for big, ugly freight because, again, you know, if you're trying to move something uh, down the, the road, I mean, you have to take down the mm -hmm. electrical lines and, and you've got to skirt around the bridges or what have mm -hmm. you uh, to, to get somewhere. That adds a lot of cost. Yeah, if you wanted and... to move a paddle wheel boat for... Um, <laughs> no, and I looked in... I mean, I, it's funny because I looked into this years ago just out of curiosity. So there's people selling one in, 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 say, B.C. or somewhere. And, yeah, how do you get it here, right? Because you can't... On a train, it... The train might weights no problem. The length may be no problem, but the height is a huge issue because yep. trains are made to go under things of certain height and through tunnels and what yeah. have you. Yeah, so, and, and turning radius, whatever. So a long thing. Yeah, can you actually go around these bends with it? All this. So I, so yeah, is, I, I get that. There is a role for airships in moving that kind of freight, yeah. and that's specialized. Uh, we call it project freight. Mm -hmm. um, in fact. I see the future where there will be probably a half a dozen different types of airships for different purposes. Mm -hmm. You know, there'll be the ones just carrying freight back and forth that, that you know, I'm looking yeah. at more closely because that's probably the biggest sector. But there'll be ones just for surveillance. Mm -hmm. There'll be ones that will be like mobile cranes mm -hmm. uh, to move short distances and lift things up and down. Yeah. Uh, there'll be, some, yeah, things you move on the highway where it's a big issue. Just yeah, a house there'll be some made. that would yeah. be uh, used for tourism purposes, mm -hmm. uh, and others, uh, you know. And there, and I'm sure there's going to be one class that produce something that we can't even think of now. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> That'll emerge once the airships are yeah. there. So, you know, there's there's lots of different uh, uses and needs. And with uh, and with big topic. ugly freight, sometimes the thing you're moving, it's just the shape of it, the length of it, the the height, whatever. But it might not even be that heavy. That's and you correct. can still put a lot of cargo around that. Well, or, or sling it below. Again, an airship can carry yeah. a sling load, but yeah. Yeah, something like a, a large vat. But I'm just uh, saying, you know, maybe you're moving a propeller or something but yeah. you know, for a wind turbine, but maybe it's not actually anywhere near the capacity of the airship weight-wise. And so you could be saying, well, you know what? The, you know, because you can have shipping agents. And you can say, we can, we can actually put more weight on this one. There's lots of room around this. You That's know. true. I mean, uh, a, a wind turbine blade, mm -hmm. you know, right now the longest one you can get down the road is 100 feet long. Okay. But if you go to 200 foot long blades, you get four times the power. Mm -hmm. So the air, the turbine uh, people are doing that on the co on the ocean installations mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Like to do it inland. Mm -hmm. and, and they've actually talked to the airship guys about moving propellers uh, with the airship. And it's fine because one of those propellers, a, a 200 foot long propeller, Weigh about 16 tons, mm -hmm. so you can move, you know, a couple of those at a time, mm 
mm-hmm. uh, into a place. And also, uh, when you decommission a field or you have to replace blades, you, you can't just cut them up in the field. Yeah. You also have to move them back whole to dispose of them safely. Right, right. So there is a role for airships in moving just wind turbine blades around. Mm-hmm. And that could be a quite a lucrative business in its own right. You know, remind, but, it, it, all, it always comes back to, you, you know, when you look at the history of this, somebody's going to write the history of all this and look into it. It's like most, most good ideas like this too are stalled at a certain level because, and it always turns out like it's always some corrupt politician or some <laughs> business guy who really, you know, he's going to lose his whole empire. God forbid these come in. And, and it's like, so the, the parable, I guess, or the comparable is, the Krupp family who invented the firearms and, and this, they invented steel in Germany in the Ruhr. They're the big, the big original uh, creators of that. But they were making firearms and they're like, steel is better than copper for cannons and firing. And, and the German army kept, well, no, I don't think so. And they kept looking at it and they're like, well, look, your, your cannon after five rounds is, is warping. Like you're not, you don't even know where the thing's going to land. It might split on you and, all kinds of bad things. Look at my thing. It goes forever. Look, boom, 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 boom. And they're like, nope, nope, not gonna, not gonna, not gonna. And it didn't even get up to the higher levels because of certain military guys who were just not gonna let it happen. So he started selling guns to the Russians and whoever else. And then they started having fights with the Germans <laughs> using their, their own technology. And they're going to the Krups and saying, you guys are selling to the enemy. And they're like, no, no, we're just finding a customer base and we started with you. So this is nobody's fault but your own. And they're like, okay, well, give us some of those. <laughs> and they're like, gladly. That's what we want to do in the first place. So do you have to create airships to compete with Canada just to show Canada? Like, is this something that's going to come out of Tesla's factory in Texas now? And they're going to fly from Mexico up to the north and start taking all their, all their business? And then well, Canada's going to wake up and go, hey, Barry Prentice, you had this idea. You sold this to Tesla. You, you're an evil guy. And you're like, no, no, no. I've been telling you for years. And you can get in on this, and here's how, right? Like, yeah. is it is that something that's going to happen? Well, uh, it, it sort of ha- is happening in a way. Uh, the, the first investment by a, a, any government anywhere in a civilian airship in 85 years occurred a couple of years ago in France. Okay. And the French government decided that they wanted to have an airship to uh, harvest logs from one of the rugged forested areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a result of that, they've invested in the building of an airship, which is called Flying Whales. Okay. And once they put money in, then the private sector also put money in, as well as the Chinese government decided to put money in. And uh, the Quebec government came along and said, well, well, we'll put some money in as long as you build them in Quebec. Yeah, so they're being uh, so, built and, and they're certified. No, they're, <laughs> they're a long way from that. Yeah. They're still in the engineering phase of building a hangar. Oh, in, in Quebec, in France? Yeah. In France. And, oh, so they, they're not flying around yet. No, no. Oh, and, too bad, but, eh? but that's But that's what is coming. Well, I'll tell you, so Norway House would be eating caviar and foie gras, right? You know, <laughs> and saying, here, we, we'd rather deal with France than Canada, thank you. Well, the, their target date is something like 2025. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and after that, once they're successful, then the idea is to assemble them in Quebec. Okay, we, Quebec, can, we can get there. We can compete then. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, again, it's back to when we get started. Uh, 
the the Quebec government is really invested for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One is they want the jobs in Montreal. Mm-hmm. They consider themselves the aerospace uh, mm-hmm. uh, center of Canada. Yeah. And they also uh, want the airships for what they call Plan Nord, mm-hmm. where they have an actual strategy for developing. Hey, North that's Quebec. French for North, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. I've seen, and, I've seen where you're going. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is what uh, you know the Quebec government has decided to do. Yeah. Uh, our federal government, though, is, is still mum. You know, I have not heard anything at, at all, uh, any kind of pronouncement. You know, maybe they're working on it in the back yeah. rooms now, but it, they certainly haven't informed me. Well, so okay, let's, know, let's get down to brass tacks here. Then, how does this help with COVID? Because that seems to be, you know, you got politics and, and and everything and public's opinion and all that. You got to go with the hot topic of the day, right? COVID, COVID, COVID. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! So. What's the what's the selling point then? How does well, it, how does airship help gonna, COVID? It's not going to help COVID in twenty twenty one, but it might help the next type of COVID in in twenty twenty eight. Yeah. So how does it help uh, either prevent well, or deal with the, well, the situation? Well, the like biggest this? the biggest thing is, of course, it's who's the vulnerable people that could help, and that would be the people in the north. Mm-hmm. Improve the living conditions and food quality and so on. Can it help somebody in uh, in in uh, down here, like in uh, Charleswood, I, I don't see how. You know, I mean, again, we're gonna have uh, to work on that because that'll be important. <laughs> All the voters live be, down here. <laughs> it could be, but but you know, the, uh, the what COVID has shown us is really that you know, when if people have a, a commitment and want to do something, or the government does, you know, there's money for it, and, and they will invest the money. Uh, it's just a case that they have not made the North a priority, and. You know, I also read just before Christmas that the government had uh, committed uh, some uh, a huge amount of money, $2 billion or more, to some uh, space program, mm-hmm. of which $600 million was going to be used to, to send a, a Canadian astronaut to circle around the moon. So they can get well, him a vaccine for $2 billion. Well, you know, the, how do we justify spending yeah. $600 million to send a guy around the moon when we can't even get an airship to Baker Lake? Yeah. And every time they do every time they do space exploration and one of these uh, SpaceX ships blows up or takes off, is burning up, like it's creating problems for our atmosphere. You know, every time, like every it's like it's like jet engines, right? Every time you fire airlift out of uh, New York to go to L.A. or somewhere, that's causing problems for the environment. And space travel still isn't carbon neutral at all. It's it's big time footprint. Well, again, you know, the, I I don't want to suggest that we shouldn't, uh, you know, continue to push all the frontiers. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that somehow space became a priority, and there's $2 billion for space research, mm-hmm. but there's not a, a nickel to research airships. We and to, which yeah. is more important to us living here yeah. in Canada? Yeah. So, you know, it's back to priorities. If And, you know, again, I think uh, politically... You know, the we're a very urbanized country. And if you can win all the votes in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, you don't need any others. Mm-hmm. You can form the government. So, you know, the government tends to be very urban-focused. And the North is, you know, they, they, every once in a while, you know, the conditions pop up and embarrass them, and they throw some money at it. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be any commitment to make a long-term change. And that rug's getting a lot of dirt under it. It doesn't even look like a rug anymore. 
you know, like it doesn't. It's like everybody's going, well, uh, I think your rug has a lot of stuff under it, government. You know, it's kind of obvious. Well, and again, you know, it's back to us. You yeah. know, like uh, people listening to this broadcast, have they called their MP and say, yeah. you know, why aren't you doing something? You know, yeah. I mean, we carry on with our own lives and we kind of forget about it because it's a small population mm-hmm. scattered over a big land mass. And, you know, none of us go and visit there. Mm-hmm. So we kind of forget about it. But yeah, uh, but my thing too is, um, like I keep coming back to this whole tourism aspect or whatever. If you got in an airship in Winnipeg as a, as a passenger, you're, you're flying how high again? Oh, about 5,000 feet. So you can see the ground very easily. Okay. It's and, like flying in a small airplane. Okay. And, and so let's say I want to go to Toronto. How long does that, will that take me as a flight? It's 2,000 kilometers. So I would say... Uh, it would probably take about 14 hours, 16 hours, maybe. Okay. And in between, I would see, if that was in the daytime, if we left here at 6 a.m., we'd get there at like 8, 8 p.m. or something. Um, I'd see I'd see everything. I'd see all the landscape. I'd see all kinds of yeah. stuff on the way. Well, the, the, the people who fly the uh, advertising blimps, you know, they go across country uh, of different places. And I've spoken to them. They tell me that it's amazing how much wildlife they can see. Yeah. Because the airship is moving, you know, relatively slowly and quietly. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't disturb anything on the ground. So the deer and the bears and everything else. Uh, one of the things that uh, Mayor Spence, the, the mayor of Churchill, and I have mused about was the idea of putting a little radio identification tag in the in the ear of the polar bear. Mm-hmm. And then take go out on the ice uh, hunting and you could come along with an airship to find them and and watch from a distance and see yeah. them actually hunting. I mean, what a tourist experience that would be. Yeah, without disturbing them at all. Yeah. I, I watched the Nature of Things, I think, or something way, way back, and they talked about building a road to an oil well in the north somewhere, northern Alberta or wherever, and they said when they put a road in, an actual physical road on the ground, they cut it out through the forest, they build it up, and then they put traffic on it. That road affects wildlife in 10 miles in both directions. Yes, I, I I believe that's true, especially uh, yeah. the caribou. So if are you pretty much affected. so if you don't have to build a road, or you can get rid of some roads and just fly over that. Uh, sorry, bonk. <laughs> but if you can just fly over this in an airship, not only don't do you not need to build a road or anything, but you're not disturbing the natural habitat at all. Yeah, you leave the forests intact. Yeah, and uh, and that's really very desirable. Uh, so absolutely, <laughs> the the people uh, the the. The Canadian Wildlife uh, Group spoke at one of our conferences on that, mm-hmm. and you know they're very encouraged about this. But again, one of my great disappointments in this topic is it's been very hard to get the environmental movement to get behind the airship idea, mm-hmm. and I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe they're in that stage one with their they lose two their with job. They're worried you wouldn't have to worry about the environment anymore. <laughs> well, no, I think it's more <laughs> that they, they might. They might think they lose their credibility, but mm. you know the the idea is that uh, the airships are an environmental green technology, and you know people are waking up to it and promoting it that way in the industry. Well, I've been and, keeping track, and on the positive board here, I got everything, and on the negative side, I, I don't, I got nothing, nothing. There's nothing there that says don't do this. Short of shuttle pollution, I can't think of many things that uh, would be a problem mm-hmm. uh, because they are. Uh, fairly benign. Uh, they they don't uh, make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have any emissions, uh, and they can really, uh, I think, tie the country together. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it isn't like it's not 
possible to live in the north. I mean, yeah, it's a little colder than we have, but maybe a week longer mm-hmm. or so. But it's really, uh, there's a, a lot of Canada that could be uh, lived in. The trouble is transportation. If you haven't got a job, you can't stay there. So, uh, you know, we yeah. bringing the prosperity to the north mm-hmm. is what will help to uh, uh, settle the rest of the country. And if you're only flying at that height, it's like even in airplanes, you can still get cell towers and and, and stuff like that, right? Oh, I believe so. So yeah. at this height, you, that would be even a stronger signal, wouldn't it? Well, again, it depends how far north you are. With, with the, oh, no, but I'm, what, what I'm thinking, though, in my mind is is eventually like a transportation hub of airships going horizontally uh, across our cities. Where you, somebody can say, I can get on an airship, see, do my tourism of Canada, and keep working. Well, you know? I don't... I think that actually would be more in the line of, uh, if you're going, say, uh, flying to Europe, mm-hmm. you know, like I've flown to Europe a lot of times, and I hate it, because you, you get on a plane late at night, mm-hmm. you fly through the night, you arrive in the morning with a, not well rested, mm-hmm. and then you feel crappy for a couple of days, and the jet lag works off. Yeah. Well, if you could go in an airship and basically have your office with you, mm-hmm. it takes you, uh, say, 36 to 48 hours to get there, and in the meantime, you're working on your computer, have a good sleep, have a nice lunch, you mm-hmm. watch down below what's happening, and you arrive refreshed. Maybe it's as effective as flying in a jet. And I know, uh, so, I know opera singers who won't fly because it dries their throats out too hard and it takes, <laughs> it takes too long to recover. So, well, that's interesting. I didn't you know, know so that. Flying but... from, yeah, so flying from Italy over to, to New York, they won't do it because they're expected to sing and perform and then go back. And they're like, I can't, I can't do that because my voice... I'm going to ruin it. So they will take uh, cruise lines hmm. and ships because, and then they'll they'll perform on the way. They'll say, you know, that's how I'll do my passage. I'll, I'll take the three weeks or whatever to get there. But when I do get there, I can perform right away because I haven't ruined my voice because I haven't been 30,000 feet or whatever it is they fly over oceans at. So well, on airships too, I can see how, because they're not pressurized, right? Yep. So it's... You know, oh, it would be uh, it's quite an attractive way to travel, and yeah. and again, it's maybe one of those six things that you know nobody wants to predict that today, but it's not impossible to happen. I think and, I I look at these kind of things, and I look at the end game, and I think, how is life? What does life look like with these? And I think it looks, it's almost like low tech but futuristic, and it's certainly good for the environment. It's good for tourism. It's good for the peace of mind of people. It's good for economies because you can take anything anywhere. Um, it's just, well, they, know, it's, you like know, a, it's, it's like a no-brainer. And a billion dollars for a country like Canada is like nothing. It's nothing. It's, well, it's, you know, if, you, if you're if you developing into, a technology, it's really nothing. If you put that into the context of what's the alternative, yeah, uh, gravel roads in the north cost about $3 million dollars a kilometer on average. <clears throat> yeah. So how much would you get for building 333 kilometers of gravel road in mm-hmm. the north versus an airship industry that served the whole north? Even if you just build one and it just went back and forth like every two days, they got there, you know, if it took day to get there and day to get back. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, you know, just the, 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 just if it was in, in function, say it was even going just every four days or every week, you're just getting there 52 times. It's it's hauling in a bunch of stuff. It's a regular. Uh, people can come out with it probably in small numbers. They can come in in small numbers. It's, it just seems like, 
why not? And why not even try it? Why not test? Well, it, this is uh, what I've been saying for many years. Is yeah. you know, like if because uh, rather than just being silent mm-hmm. and ignoring the topic, you know, why doesn't the government invest enough at least? Do what to, science does, government, just, and put money into it, it and see if it fails. Try and prove it doesn't work by by doing an experiment. Yes, you don't. And, you don't sit there and go. I don't think the experiment's going to work, so I'm not going to do it. Like that's <laughs> crazy. That's politics, and that's why politics doesn't work. You got to do well, science with things and say, at, at the very least, the ethic of the science, which says you have to try it to see what happens, and and record that, and then you use that as a basis. Well, I remain uh, the eternal optimist, and I believe that the government will. Uh, do this, and and if for no other reason uh, than the famous uh, statement that uh, Churchill made during the War of the Americans, he said that they they will eventually do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I think by now the government of Canada has exhausted all the other possibilities for the North, so it's time to do the right thing. And you know we should all encourage them again. Call your MP and ask them get on this because. Uh, the sooner we do this, the sooner that we get the benefits from it in terms of uh, the, the people who live there, but also the economic opportunities. I mean, why should uh, we simply cede the idea of the airships to Montreal, have them get the jobs? Why aren't we building them here in Winnipeg? Yeah. And, and hey, Pallister, you took away our Christmas. You called yourself a Grinch. The least you could do in return is give us an airship. <laughs> like, come on, cry for that, right? Let's, well, we could, we've got the North talent is crying there. for this. Like crying we, we, is not just a political opportunism thing at a, a press conference. This is real. This is well, a real we've got deal. The, we've got the talent here. We've got yeah. the, the, the education and, and the engineering. Uh, we've got the space. There, there's nothing holding us back except, of course, uh, you know, you have to have people who are willing to, to risk uh, the money to do it. It's that one and, corrupt person somewhere in an office. I know it. Well, <clears throat> and I, you know, the, the best, the, the only alternative from giving somebody a bag of money is to prevent them from getting the bag of money from somewhere else. <laughs> so we got to get those lobbies off their back, the airline lobby, the oil lobby, the highway building lobby, the trucking lobby. And you got to take all those people and say, airline, you can be involved with us. This is the future. Um, food lobby, and whatever, trucking lobby. You guys are going to have lots of jobs. It's the last mile stuff. Well, you know, we can't take know a, you can't just drive a blimp around town delivering stuff. You, you bring it in, you land it. Things have to be moved out, you know. Like there's there's lots of stuff like the 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 highway guys. You're just gonna be, you know, help us build in every remote community a landing place with a turntable. And a well, the reality is, you know? you know, let's take the highways. You know, we would like we do today. We would truck as far as we have roads. Mm-hmm. So you know, we truck to Thompson perhaps. Yeah. And transload the airship there, or we, or to Sioux Lookout. Well, you wouldn't even have trans- to. I mean, we could start get. We don't even have to fix a road anymore. You know, because, and that's why I think. I, I know, you know, and, I, and again, you said these would be primarily transportation, but I think there's a side bar where they are, they're, they're not just goods and, and hauling, it's people, you know, whether it's a smaller one or whatever, because if you can save the money on that road, that highway, like we're not talking gravel, we're talking highways now, going up to Thompson and that, and you can replace that with guaranteed back and forth, nice, easy you know, you don't have to drive, you don't have to, you just get on like you would an airplane and you get to Winnipeg or you get to Brandon or you get to wherever you want to go. People would say, yeah, we don't need the roads. We don't need highways. We don't even need a car up here. I can come to the PAW and, and do my work 
And when I want to visit Winnipeg, I, I don't have to have insurance and a vehicle and gas and blah, blah, blah. I just get on this airship. I fly to Winnipeg <clears throat> and I get on their local transportation and I do my thing and I have my fun. And uh, then I go back home on the same kind of transportation. You know? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting vision. I don't necessarily buy into it. I think that you know, the there is a road for uh, for roads and mm. uh, and and. Oh no, I know what you're saying. I, I understand but, the the but complications I think the, behind the politics. The issue is, but you know, we need we need to have uh, a solution for where we don't have roads. Yeah. And that's seventy percent of the country. Well, yeah. Start there so, and give them every and transportation and and hauling. I, you know, I'm just saying as we move forward in time, when that's proven and that's effective, and then they go, okay, Highway 6 is going to need, you know, what, a trillion dollars or whatever. You know, they can just go, no, we don't need to do that. We're just going to use, we're going to implement this instead. It's going to be cheaper. <laughs> we'll build another airship. We'll build another whatever, right? Because it, it just takes over that way. You know, the gravity of the situation just says, do this because it works, so. Yeah. Well, I, again, uh, I'm not sure about that, but mm -hmm. I, I think one thing that the airships can do is uh, remove cargo jets mm -hmm. uh, because there's really no need for cargo to move at 500 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And uh, they created a huge amount of pollution. Mm -hmm. And so the airships could serve uh, and, and really reduce the carbon loading on the skies uh, by just replacing uh, jet airplanes, which are used for cargo. Mm -hmm. uh, the passenger jets... Uh, you know, uh, again, I think the, the speed does matter. And as I said earlier, there's, we don't need to get rid of all the carbon emissions. We just have to reduce them to what's an acceptable level. Yeah, so, I think speed matters. I, when COVID happened here and everybody stopped in the last, last spring, they said, okay, nobody move around, don't go to work, don't go to school. I saw a lot of happy people who were walking and going, oh, I don't have to drive to three sports, two jobs, groceries, blah, blah, blah. They were actually reconfiguring their life very quickly into the more, more laid back, pleasure driven. I can still do my work. I can still do my stuff, but I'm not, I'm not going everywhere and, and sitting in traffic and being stressed out. I think there's a lot to be said for that. You don't need to get like from New York to la and whatever it is three hours or five hours or eight hours or whatever you can take your time and, and a lot of people are they look back at those old transcontinental railways where you got on and you got to see the country and that was you know a lot of people had their own cars or the fancy cars just for that they're rich they wanted to do that you know and um i think the time of efficiency is sort of over where it's become this big myth that if you can be hyper efficient everything's better. And I think people are now realizing, no, if you have a good life, it, things still get done and everything's better. Well, there's no question that we reassessed a lot of things. Yeah. You know, and in fact, I think one of the interesting uh, uh, changes was golf. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a sport that young people weren't taking up and they, they were, you know, they're looking at the future and thinking it was pretty bleak. All of a sudden, COVID comes along and you can't get a tea time. Yeah. So, you know, the, some things get rediscovered that yeah. we, uh, and maybe simpler things too. I mean, it's not all bad, yeah. but, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the economy and things will sort out based on people's demands and, and costs. 
And think and of advertising too. These are big billboards, right? They are indeed. You can print and on the material. Like I don't know, like billboards have to be erased and new stuff put on. <laughs> Is that possible with their ships? Oh yeah, I mean they they yeah. they do that uh, regularly for the uh, the advertising blimps, yeah. and it is possible. But you know the part of the reason the advertising blimps work is they're so rare mm. that you know people do pay attention to them. Yeah, uh, but they're but, like if, if the people weren't moving, the reason billboards on highways works is you're moving past billboards. <laughs> but if well, you're staying still, you want the the advertising guys want the billboards to move past the people. Well, right? <laughs> we we sometimes refer to tractor trailers that way. Yeah. You know they're they're. They're mobile billboards. Yeah. And, you know, so they, they do have that purpose. But you see something. a blimp a lot. He's like, the, again, it wipes uh, transportation off the map. It's like it's in the air. It's up there <laughs> and everybody can see it, right? Like, come on. <laughs> it's just well, got no down point. I, 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 don't, I look at every aspect of this. And I'm like, well, why isn't the advertising lobby behind this? You know, the whole bit, right? Anyway. I like well, the idea. It's a, what I'm saying is I really it's like a very what's big, happening. It's a very big project. Yeah. And, you know, it's got a very big uh, barrier to entry. Yeah. Uh, which is what's held it back. And and also one of the other things that's held it back is for years and years, uh, we've not uh, allowed people to use hydrogen mm-hmm. as a lifting gas. And uh, right. that, was, that was back to, uh, you know, a, a lobby effort by the helium producers in the U.S. that mm-hmm. convinced the government there to ban hydrogen, yeah. uh, just on the basis of you know, uh, really, what was a pretty uh, questionable exercise. It was a flawed well, experiment. Yeah, that's yeah, the equivalent that's, of Edison burning up a, an elephant, saying, "Look, that's dangerous." Exactly. Or the well, actually, the the uh, yeah. yeah, that was a, a electric chair. Yeah. But yes, the the same sort of thing. And as a result of that, you know, the mere fact that we've shunned using hydrogen in airships has really handicapped the industry because helium is, is scarce. Mm-hmm. But we have, we had built an airship. We, we had a hangar in, uh, at St. Andrews that we lost it in a big storm. But, you know, there was about a year and a half or more when we could not buy helium at any price. Mm-hmm. You know, it's inconsistent product mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a finite amount. But hydrogen, of course, is more efficient, gives you more lift a fraction of the cost mm-hmm. and it's uh, everywhere. So, uh, you know, the idea of returning to hydrogen, which the Europeans are now looking at this very closely. And, uh, that's the way that uh, mm-hmm. the future of the airship will be. And if people are afraid of think, Oh my goodness, you know, we're going to return to the, the, the casualties of, mm-hmm. of the Hindenburg. <laughs> no, we're not because mm-hmm. today we have sniffers mm-hmm. that you can, you know, pick out parts per million of, of hydrogen and you can very safely ventilate an area if there's any leaks. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, uh, we understand this technology. It, hydrogen is used in all kinds of processes now in, in motors and what have you. Mm-hmm. So this is part of the future as well. And that's part of your ground crew jobs all over the place because you have to have crews on the ground who, who do this kind of maintenance and checking and stuff every time one of these lands. Well, the, I think you'd have the, the whole airship would be instrumented with yeah. sensors. Based off that, there's any yeah. any evidence of, and in fact, even you know, into the, we don't have to go that far into the future. Mm-hmm. Another ten years or so, and I think they could fly as drones. Yeah, uh, there can be anybody on board. But you still need, and, pe- like, in case something does go wrong with it, you need a human hand to to touch it. Like you're going to need staff all around. Like this, maybe. Is, this is jobs, and this is because it's oversight. It's uh, part of well, your I mean, maintenance. There may and, be somebody on board who's just 
you know, mm-hmm. checking uh, gauges and 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 there yeah. to help unload the cargo. But well, when you get to Churchill, I, if there's an issue, they want you know you don't want just that person. You need a couple people up there who can, you know. Well, if the airship has a real problem, you just turn off the engines and float. Yeah. And you wait until you have, a, you know, some way of dealing with that. But yeah. I, I'm just saying that I don't think in the future uh, that we're going to see uh, uh, even the risk to people. Mm. Uh, it's not like the past. And again, mm. you go back to the 1930s, you know, <laughs> if you were in a car accident, you were probably going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, you know, with, with airbags and seatbelts and measures and so on, uh, you know, we've, we've made them safe. And we'll do the same thing with airships. Yeah, because even with self-driving cars coming, the idea is that you'll survive 100% because there won't be any accidents. It's about right. eliminating risk. Right. Yeah. Uh, the only problem I see with the driverless car is it'd be like uh, uh, driving with your grandmother. It'll be very slow and pokey. But you're not getting slammed into by the drunk guy coming back well, from the bender. <laughs> and, of course, you can you can sit and read a book while... Yeah. <laughs> well, you're getting there, yeah, but exactly. you know the uh, but the yeah. the world is going to be very different. Well, and, even with well, helium, you know, non-eating helium, you're not even infringing on the birthday party set. So, well, the so bigger they'll be problem about the, that. The bigger problem is the MRIs and the electronics industry. There's certain uh, yeah. processes that really do need helium. Yeah, and we should reserve it for those uses. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the comedians, you know, airships yeah. don't have to. Yeah, comedians. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, the, the idea of using hydrogen, uh, there's already been an airship over in, in uh, Belgium, mm-hmm. uh, an experimental airship flown with hydrogen uh, a year ago. And it's a small one. But, so, you know, they're already thinking of it and working on it. Yeah, so when you show this picture of all over the world this is happening, and, and I see all those different airships, are they all in experimental stage right now as well? Yes. Yes, okay. there, there's not a there's not a single cargo airship uh, in production, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just a matter of time. But they've uh, actually been backed, and they're building them, and they're and they're going well, through testing and stuff. Again, like finance has always been the problem yeah. for this industry, and you know they're they're the the people in uh, France, the Flying Whales Company, is the best financed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this and the other one, which uh, is a military contractor, is Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. And but they're you know they only deal with military topics. Yeah. So, uh, but the uh, uh, again, we didn't lose all the records from the Zeppelins or, or <laughs> others. You know, we we actually know how to build airships and and how to do them very very well. And yeah. indeed, today with the lighter composite materials, uh, carbon fiber, uh, we can build airships that are much lighter and and stronger than the past. Well, even England in in. Going, I think it was in World War II. Didn't they have a whole uh, situation where they were building a whole fleet? And the only problem is that a, a, a major storm came along or something destroyed the hangars and destroyed a bunch of it, and it would have cost too much to rebuild, so they focused instead on on, on aircraft for the war? And uh, I don't think so. The, uh, I mean, the, the what you're thinking of, I believe, is the, uh, the R-100 and the R-101, could which been. were rigid airships that were built to basically tie together the empire mm-hmm. was the idea. Okay. And uh, the the one that they they did build uh, that was yeah uh, built by the government uh, bureau mm-hmm. uh, it was overweight and uh, had bad design mm-hmm. and essentially uh, it was lost in a, in a storm. Okay. Uh, in fact, most of the airships of that era 
they were structural failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they didn't know how strong to build them because they didn't have the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we have something called a strain gauge, and so you can put this onto the equipment and you can see where the stresses are accumulating. Well, they didn't have that, mm-hmm. so they had to kind of guess and trial and error to do this. And of course, you know, the, there's always this issue of you know you put on another pound, you mm. <laughs> the pound you're not carrying, yeah. so you got this pressure for weight that was there. But also, they had very crude materials. Uh, the the painted canvas that covered the old zeppelins it offered no structural support. Mm. It was just there to keep out the the rain, and the gas cells that were holding the, the gas inside the, the airship, they were made from cow's intestines pasted on the linen sheets. Well, yeah. so they'd only last about four years where they would dry out, and they leaked very badly. And even with that, they didn't have accidents, but mm-hmm. they, they did leak terribly. And But we're not going to go back to that. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not like we're going to put cow's intestines <laughs> on the linen sheets anymore. And, and we have modern materials and engineering and you know, all the ways of doing this and doing it very safely, uh, it's just a matter of putting the pieces together. And in fact, most of the components to build an airship already exist. Uh, we're not going to invent propellers or motors or actuators or avionics or landing gear. It's already existing in the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. It'll just be a matter of adapting it to an airship. All right, let's do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm ready to start tomorrow when you when you yep. get that uh, <laughs> that fun flowing. So, uh, you know, and and indeed, you know, yes. What what is holding us back? I I've often said that I think years from now the the question that will be asked most often is why did it take us so long? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's we, gonna be some finger pointing after this. Yeah. Well, you know, we we yeah. certainly you know again electric cars and wind turbines. You know, we've, they've been around now for at least a decade, if not longer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we made that move. But, you know, the airship is just that more, much more difficult because it's, it's a bigger uh, item, bigger mm-hmm. piece to, to, to take on. And also, uh, the government is not just a passive observer. Mm-hmm. You know, the government of Canada owns the sky. Yeah. They yeah. say who can fly and what can fly and where mm-hmm. you can fly and where you can land and who can fix. They say they control everything. Mm-hmm. So if they're uh, a WOL, nothing can happen. Hmm. And you know this is back to the need to to have uh, uh, a, a national commitment to this. We don't have to have the government necessarily investing all the money to do it, but it's got to show the direction. And that they are prepared to make sure this happens. And we and need a this, we need a government where the individuals within the elected officials and, and the people working in it are able to pass a middle school science test. <laughs> well, you, did, did you pick up that? That was a quote that one of the people in the COVID response in Ontario. <laughs> she was saying she's so frustrated by all this, and she says, and quite frankly, none of them can pass a, a middle school science test. They don't actually know what they're talking about. Like they think, oh, it'll just blow away. What are you talking about? Balloon, it'll just blow. Like, well, doesn't the prevailing wind, they'll all end up in the Atlantic. You know, it's like they don't, I think a lot of this is just basic concept. My questions, you know, were answered easily, succinctly. And if I watched one in action, I'd be like, oh, look, it's, it's flying into the wind. <laughs> you know, oh, and it turned around and it didn't just blow wherever. You know, and I think a lot, just that would 
take a lot of these people go well why aren't we doing this you know but but yes that head in the sand is i don't believe it uh you know maybe we should get QAnon pushing it (laughs) (laughs) well boy would that move that fast i think the reality the reality is that you know uh, we just need to demand a solution yeah and you know we that we shouldn't tolerate uh the the current situation and especially when you know if if people uh, you know um, uh, want to deny a, a potential solution they need to have at least some evidence to base that denial on yeah so ignorance, just- ignorance is not a defense yeah, what's the justification for the government of not doing it? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I would say, and and also similar to the bureaucracy. But you know, oftentimes you know we we put a lot of a weight on the elected politicians. Uh, sometimes it's really the bureaucracy that's that's uh, blocking things. Yeah, and you know the the bureaucracy tends to be very very conservative, especially in the field of transport. Want to keep their jobs? And, want to hang on to those jobs? Well, you know, they don't want to take any. They don't want to take any risks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, no civil servant was ever disciplined for saying no. <laughs> so you know, the, the they have this inclination to mm-hmm. you know resist any change, and as a result of that, of course, you know if they're if they're not giving policy advice to the politicians, mm-hmm. you know, or if the politicians are asking, should we do this? Oh no, minister, that that would be dangerous. Well, yeah. you know, then things stop. But you know, it, it is a matter of of uh, groundswell and and. And certainly, I see that. I mean, I get emails every day mm-hmm. and, and contacts about this topic because people are engaged. Mm-hmm. And I think the you know we really had a change, and it may be that COVID has been beneficial because you know people are looking for solutions now. Yeah. And you know we're we're not stuck quite the same way as you know when everything's going really well, nobody wants to change anything. Mm-hmm. But when things aren't working so well, we start looking around to say, well, what can we do that's better? And I think the the mere fact that COVID has made us all feel more vulnerable mm-hmm. has translated over to feeling vulnerable about climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, this extra, this uh, risk or, or, or threat that was, you know, 20, 30 years out now is tomorrow. Yeah. And so people are looking for a, a solutions to climate change and green technologies. And this is one. And I think that's helping us. And it's funny, like in these days when people say, I just want things to get back to normal. And, and you say, well, do you? What is that? Let's look at that. <laughs> and, and after five minutes, they're like, yeah, I, I, we should change a bunch of stuff. You know, like normal wasn't that good back then, even a year ago, <laughs> you know. And, and it's things like this. And if I was a policy wonk, I'd be like, minister, if you back these things, it gets rid of all these other problems. You can look like a hero. And, you know, like, so why are, the, you know, that's what I'd be advocating for anybody who had power. So, I, well, again, uh, you know, both provincially and federally, mm-hmm. you know, there's a role for both uh, governments on both sides and opposition parties to, to raise this. How you long know, would it take to fly to Costa Rica from Winnipeg? Oh, uh, well, I think you'd probably be there in, you know, 36 hours, likely. And that'd be a nice, so. relaxing flight for a stresso premier <laughs> to go to his holiday home, wouldn't it? And come back. I'll come back and rule you on Tuesday. I'll be there well, Thursday. I think yeah. we could not trade with the with with Costa Rica. We'd fill that uh, airplane full of fresh tomatoes and bring them back. With yeah, them. yeah. You know, Don't sure. they make coffee and stuff like that there too? Oh yeah, very good coffee. Fresh yeah. beans. Ooh, hey, well, per cup. You know, I'm, 
I'm not trying to move things that are already possible to move. I, I you know, let's do the things that are more difficult and, and uh, are needed. Uh, I just throw everything in the new basket. <laughs> like, let's, let's just change everything now. Yeah, why not? Anyway, um, I shouldn't keep you any longer. You probably got some uh, big plans and some big things to draw up on the board. So, um, but I thank you for spending a couple hours plus here and uh, and letting us in on all the, uh, the the down low and the good things and and explaining everything to us. I, I really well, appreciate it's, that. It's a pleasure having a chance to talk about this and someone who's open minded and. And indeed, you know, again, uh, I think, you know, uh, we should be in our own self-interest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, asking for and demanding this because uh, uh, we'd all have a lot to gain from it and, and, and a better place to live. So uh, uh, I encourage everybody to, you know, send your politician, uh, your local MP and your MLA uh, a note to say, you know, ask why not. Yeah, and demand an answer. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're pretty good on. at getting back to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. And bye for now. All right. Thank you for listening. That was a, <laughs> that was a great interview. I, I like that one a lot. And that's the one I'm always telling people to go to. You know, if you want an example of what kind of people are here doing innovation in Manitoba, I say, well, you want innovation? Here you go. Dr. Barry Prentice and the Lighter Than Airships. All right, uh, just a reminder, visit us at manitobaville.ca. Find us on social medias. Also, just search Manitobaville. Find us on your favorite podcatcher and subscribe, rate, and review. And tell your friends worldwide, because this is the internet and we are everywhere, all at once. We're big. We're worldwide. <laughs> We're like ZZ Top <laughs> in that way. <laughs> Anyway, um, so there you go. I'm Angel, and this is the Manitobaville podcast that you've been listening to. And uh, that's it for this show. Come back for another. Check out our feed and find lots of interesting things. And uh, let us know what you're listening to and what you'd like to listen to. Tell us your story, and we'll get you on here to tell everybody else. All right, that's it. See you next time. This is the Manitobaville Podcast, and we're copyright 2022 by Rodeo Road Studios. Mm -hmm.